Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome to another edition of 605, the Super Podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last, and I am flying solo here at the top of the show. No co-host. I'm going to get right to the main part of the show in just a moment. I want to kick things off pretty quickly, but a few notes here at the top of the show. One. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, the ballots have been sent in. The votes are now being tabulated. It'll probably be a couple months before we know who got in. But I want to reveal my ballot here. My ballot was for the historical performers. I voted for Wild Bull Curry, Sputnik Monroe, and Enrique Torres. This year for modern performers, I voted for Junkyard Dog, Sergeant Slaughter, and Bill Goldberg. For wrestling in Japan, I voted for Yoshiaki Fujiwara, and a big change for me, Akira Taui. I, as I said I was going to do, abstained from voting for any Mexican candidates this year. For non-wrestlers, I voted for Jimmy Hart, Jerry Jarrett, and Don Owen. And for wrestling in Europe, Australia, Pacific Islands, Caribbean, or Africa candidates, I indeed voted for Big Daddy, a controversial issue that we've talked about here on the show in the past including the recent past. And in fact, recently we had John Lister on talking about his new book, Have a Good Week, Till Next Week. And he talked a little bit about Big Daddy and it got our friend Alan Blackstock fired up. So let's go to this right now, this audio. Alan sent in, wasn't solicited. Alan just sent in this audio. Let's check it out right now. Right, that's it. I've just listened to uh, you and Lister and get me on a show with Lister. I've had it now. He's talking rubbish. Um, some of the stuff he's saying... I've heard him say it to me, um, to be honest, I disagree with him in terms of Daddy is a popular, as a positive influence on the British wrestling scene. If Big Daddy wasn't around, there would be no British wrestling because it would have gone under in the 70s. Without the platform for the guys like Dynamite Kid, British Bulldog, whomever else, I can list all the names off, they wouldn't be the stars they are now without Big Daddy being on top. So, this is me wanting to have an open discussion with John Lister. Adrian Street, any other person that's going to deny Big Daddy, because he's not going to be denied, Ryan, at all. Well, we'll see if he gets denied or not, but he wasn't denied on my ballot. I voted for him. Uh, John Lister, I believe, has turned down the offer to debate Alan Blackstock. We have not heard from Adrian Street, but we will be doing another of our Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame specials this year, or perhaps early next year. I think last year it came out, or I should say this year, came out in January. But we'll be doing something with different voters talking about their ballots and talking about who did or didn't get in this year. So stay tuned for that. A couple other notes. Jace Nakarado, our director of show research, recently did something spectacular. If you remember the Mothership Facebook group, you have seen pictures of this. If not, we may have to put it on the main Facebook page, facebook.com slash superpodcast. Jace, for Halloween, dressed up as Dr. Mike Lano. And then he seemed to apparently act out several skits, including going into an actual store and shoplifting his Snickers bar, getting on a payphone in his bathrobe. You get the idea. But I want to really give a major uh, shout out to Chase because that's pretty amazing. That's pretty spectacular. And what commitment to a man who may or may not need to be committed. Uh, but great job there, Chase. One other thing in terms of friends of the show, Jerry Gray, the golden boy. You guys hear him on the show all the time. Well, as you guys know, he's been battling a lot of things with cancer and also, of course, the way that's depleted all of his income. And if you can help, if you enjoy him on the show, please do help. 
tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. All that money goes directly to Jerry. No interference. No middlemen in Missouri putting their hands on the money. Uh, you know, for instance, just a, you know, an example there, of course. But the point is, if you want to help Jerry out, this is the way to do it. tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. And we'll have Jerry back on the show probably next episode. But uh, this episode, there was a lot going on, so we didn't get him on this time. But there is a lot going on. I know a lot of people have been waiting for this episode. I apologize for the endless delays, but uh, there's a certain quality I'm after, and a show doesn't get released until I feel that it's ready. And this show is just about ready, so I'm really excited about it. There's a lot of really cool things on this show, but right here to start it off, we're going to go to a little bit of audio of me and Don Leo Jonathan. Of course, Don Leo just passed away, and I was very fortunate, very grateful to have an opportunity to speak with him, not just once, but several times earlier this year. Of course, we had the big interview here on the show, but I had several other smaller conversations with him. Maybe the smallest is now going to be aired right here. Just a fun little conversation with me and Don Leo while he was waiting for his ride to the doctor. Let's go to this right now. My conversation with the late, great wrestling legend, Don Leo Jonathan. I am very happy to once again be spending a few minutes with the legendary Don Leo Jonathan. Don Leo, how are you today? I'm pretty good. You sound pretty good. Yeah, well, i got a few things uh, going on, but uh, I'm pretty good. You know, I, um, I wanted to ask you about something. Last time when you and I spoke, you spoke a little bit off air about Killer Kowalski and your friendship and how you and him actually talked religion and he took you to church. And I'm just curious, with all of your travels and all of the various characters you met in wrestling, was this something you were interested in exploring other religions and philosophies? And who did you enjoy talking to about that? Well, I did study the other religions. I actually converted to Judaism at one time. Really? Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm surprised now that all of the young Jewish kids that I talk to, none of them can speak Yiddish. You could add me to that list. <laughs> a lost, it's getting to be a lost language. It is. I only know a few of the words. I don't know. I, I can't speak it, but there are certain words I know. Yeah. When did you learn to speak it? Oh, uh, 60 years ago. Where? In uh, Brighton Beach. That's the place to learn. <laughs> Dealing, I was dealing with the garnet that sells the chickens. <laughs> then you better know your Yiddish. <laughs> How did you like Brooklyn? Did you like Brooklyn? Pardon? I like Brooklyn, yes. The houses were pretty close together. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Still, The driveways day. was wide enough to get a bicycle in. <laughs> And all of them had the little butchers in behind that they used to rent to the people going to the beach in the summer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I actually had that 
when I was growing up in Long Beach, New York, we all had a shower in our backyard because it was a beach town. And I mentioned to you before that the lifeguard, the head lifeguard on my beach years before I was born was Paul Bosch. When did you first meet Paul I, Bosch? I met Paul Bosch uh, in Texas in 1958. Did you like going to Texas? Did you like working in Houston? Yes. Yes, I did. And I also belonged to the sheriff's department there, so I was, uh, I, I liked it. I was deputy in Harris County. I had no idea. Yeah. Hey, a lot of things about me you don't know. <laughs> As I told you before, there's a lot nobody will ever know. <laughs> well, you're certainly a very interesting man, and we love that you spend some time with us and tell us a little bit. Uh, when it comes to Houston and Paul Bosch, if you went there in 58, that means you would have known Morris Siegel as well. Tell me about Morris Siegel. Yes, and he can speak Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's good. Not many promoters could, I wouldn't think. I mean, Jack Pfeffer probably could. Morris Siegel probably could. I doubt. Yeah. Sam, I doubt Sam Mushnick could. For some reason, um, was Morris Siegel a fair promoter? Yes, he was. Oh, the car has just pulled into the driveway. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Before he gets here, I want to tell you a story. Okay. You remember A.B. Coleman? Oh, Abe Coleman. Yeah, of course, of course. A.B. Coleman. Yeah. He's in Boston. He's coming down the street to the office. Hey, A.B., where you been? I've been to the movie. What show did you see? Oh, I saw that show with Clark Gable, uh, Breezing All Day. <laughs> uh, well, he come out with a lot of stuff. <laughs> Was he known for that? Like Yogi Berra, he would say funny things? Well, yeah, he didn't speak English very good. <laughs> but did he speak Yiddish? That's the question. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's all that matters. And he probably spoke Hebrew, too. But, uh, oh, here he is. I have to let you go, my friend. There it is, a few more minutes with Don Leo Jonathan, the late, great Don Leo Jonathan. And I have a little more audio that I'll be releasing in the weeks ahead, but really, really cool to spend a few more minutes with him couple of notes from that audio. One, obviously Don Leo was waiting for someone to pick him up and that person arrived at the end. That was the person that was taking him to his doctor's appointment, in case you were wondering. And two, the joke that he said Abe Coleman or A.B. Coleman told him, uh, or not even joke, the mispronunciation. I, for one, do not know exactly what Don Leo said there. If you do, Get in touch with the show, and uh, you'll win a sticker or something, or maybe you'll win nothing. But let us know either way. Let the truth prevail here on the show. But uh, as we move on with the show, I want to say that this next segment is sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. Of course, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsore Records. You can go to their online store, ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. Enter the promo code 605 to save 20% at checkout. But I want to once again remind everyone that the Avett Brothers are doing a really cool thing. They are headlining the Concert for Hurricane Florence Relief at the Minges Coliseum. Of course, that's at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The concert, Tuesday, November 13th. 
2018, also on the bill, Future Islands and Valiant Thor. For tickets, you can go to ecutickets.net, ecutickets.net, of course, East Carolina University, that be the ECU in that address there. Tickets are $75 for the lower level or $65 for the upper level, and once again, they're on sale now. And there's a connection to East Carolina University, too, because Scott Avid actually went to school there. He got an art degree there. So a little bit of background information. But obviously, there have been so many storms that have impacted so many people in this country, so many listeners, quite frankly, of this show. And if you are in the area and you can help out, check out this show. Once again, the Avid Brothers, along with Future Islands and Valiant Thor, headline the Concert for Hurricane Florence Relief, the Minges Coliseum at East Carolina University, Tuesday, November 13th. 2018 ECU tickets.com or dial 1 800 dial ECU to get tickets. That's 800 342 5328. But with that said, let's now move on to another of our popular segments here on the show, Front Row Section D. And this time, John Hitchcock's not going to just talk about wrestling hijinks, he's also going to let us know about the time he met Jerry Garcia. Let's go to this right now. We are back on the Super Podcast once again with John Hitchcock and Front Row Section D. Hitch, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. I want to ask you about a couple of things that have recently come up. I know they were on Facebook, I think in the Mothership Facebook group. And the uh-huh. first one I have to ask you about, it's gone around. We just talked about it a little bit on Jim Cornette's show, Wrestle War 90. The entire show, you can watch the entire show, the clips of the Midnight Express match have gone around with Jim and Nick Patrick fighting. The entire mm-hmm. show, you're right there. I mean, dead center, facing the camera, and of course, holding up your famous signs. Most famously that night is probably We've Heard Enough, obviously targeted right at Jim Heard. What was the story behind that, and what do you remember about that night? Well, we knew it was going to be a hot card. I mean, there was something about it, and it was, you know, it was obviously a pay-per-view. And that night was, was also interesting because a lot of the uh, the big-time sheep people were there. Dave Meltzer was there. We got him some tickets on the next section. He wasn't good enough to sit on Section D, so we put <laughs> him down on Section section C. No, we, I'm just kidding. Um, we, you had to fight to get in Section D. We had crew that would always go. And you, if you ever didn't put somebody in for some whatever reason, they would go crazy. But I'm pretty sure Meltzer was there for that. I, I could be wrong, but there was a lot of people there, and we knew it was going to be a hot show. And there were people that would come up, like uh, Jeff Bowdrin and Dave Flaherty. They came up a couple times to the Greensboro shows. And they and after the show, they would just go, I've never seen heat like this. I've never seen the crowd so hot. I mean, the crowd is into it. and place is nuts. And, uh, and you know, we helped kind of steer it up. You know, that's just kind of our job because we, we loved it and still love it. So – when Jim Hurd came in, um, all I all I needed to know was um, that he was the president of Pizza Hut. He ran a couple of Pizza Huts, and I said, "What does a guy who's running Pizza Huts, what does he know about wrestling?" And then after a couple of months, we realized nothing. He doesn't know <laughs> shit. He's an he's he he's got all these. He's the guy that's bringing RoboCop out. He's the guy who's having the remember that big cage of doom thing. And uh, where the and then and Abdul the butcher was electrocuted in an electric chair. Yeah, remember that shit. Oh yeah, I, and, you know Jim Heard, man, the ding dongs that had little bells tied into their costumes so they would jingle around and they'd run around in a circle because they were <laughs> autistic. 
And God knows what would have happened if we would have seen the hunchbacks. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if they would have done that. I mean, you talk about human rights. I mean, come on. Uh, Cornette told a funny story. He said he was in the booking committee and, and Heard throws out the idea of the hunchbacks as a tag team. And he says, uh, yeah, just think, you know, they're hunchbacks. You can't pin them. You know, you can't get them both their shoulders down. You know, it'd be a great team. You know, they're hunchbacks. And then Cornette just looked at Ole Anderson and said, hey, Ole, uh, how would you go? How would you and Gene handle the, the hunchbacks? He said, we'd put them in the corner, we'd beat their ass, and we'd make them submit. <laughs> what the hell, you know? And they're like, what? We didn't think about that. Well, anyway, let me put it this way, Brian. If the fans know that the guy running the promotion is a moron, is, an, is incapable of doing the job, imagine what the boys that are wrestling think. Now, they don't mind getting paid, but they know they're spinning wheels because they're dealing with somebody who doesn't know what the hell he's doing. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's like the the push of trying to uh, bring in Hollywood into this. You know, well, Ted Turner owns, uh, you know, um, MGM, so we got to bring in Oz. You know, I mean, it's just everything about it was against what the Crockett's did, which the Crockett's really were a blood and guts tag. You know, at first, it was a tag team thing, and then it was just a hard hitting thing with just great wrestlers and and great personalities and guys that worked their ass off. And then you started doing all this weird junk, you know. So I'd had enough of it, and I knew this was going to be a big pay-per-view, and I knew there was going to be a lot of people there. And I didn't tell anybody. Now, everybody knew that, you know, the Greensboro rep was we'd always have goofy signs or funny signs and stuff. And You were already hated by David Crockett, Jackie Crockett, and Doug Dillinger. And Doug, Doug Dillinger. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Doug Dillinger. Yeah. We, uh, we, we decided we were going to go after Dusty one night like nobody's business. And we got the crew down there. And we spelled out in big poster boards, Dusty sucks, in giant letters. And I was carrying these posters in. And David Crockett, Doug Dillinger, and about four or five of Greensboro's finest are looking at people carrying signs in. And suddenly Dillinger goes, there he is, there he is. And the cops come, and Crockett comes, and he goes, let me see those signs. And I showed him. I said, it says Dusty sucks. And David Cry goes, you're not bringing that shit in here. We've had enough of you. We've had enough of you stirring up our shows. And you're not bringing those signs in here. I said, I got a ticket. He said, you got a ticket. You can come in, but you ain't bringing those signs in. You're not doing that. You're not going to ruin our show. And the police are sitting there. You know, they've got guns. You know, not that I – John Hitchcock, wrestling oddball, gets shot to death by Greensboro's finest. So I'm like – I'm like, come on, David. It's going to come on, Doug. And they're like, no, no, get that shit out of here. And they were venomous. They were angry as shit. So I went out to a pine tree and threw them underneath the pine tree. I never did get to use them. And we, we were basically stopped at the border over the shit. So, you know, of, of just having fun and stirring up the crowd and everything. So anyway, so I made up my mind. I was going to go ahead and stick it to her because I thought he deserved it. And I didn't tell anybody. You know, I didn't tell a single soul. I didn't tell any of the front row guys. They didn't know what I was going to do. We had some, we, I think we had some scorecards. You know, we had some comic book backing boards with one through 10, and we would rate the matches, and we'd hold those up during the show. And whenever the bad guys would do something great, they get nines and tens. Whenever the good guys would do something, they get twos or minus or point or one half or something. The fans would start screaming, yelling at us. How can you give that? You know, we're sitting closer than you. We got better eyesight. So anyway, so I made that sign, you know, we heard enough. And uh, I kept thinking, well, when am I going to hold it up? Maybe I should hold it up during the flare match. But I said, no, that's too late. So I decided to hold it up during the Midnight Express Rock and Roll Express match. And the big camera is right there, right? So you can see it. 
And I held it up, and then I turned around and showed the showed the the poster to the crowd. And half the crowd didn't get it, but the other ones did. And people were just screaming, laughing. And when Bob, when uh, Bobby and and Stan came out and Jimmy, they started laughing. And they have their heads turned so you can't see it, but they're laughing. They're in the ring and they're just like falling out. And this was a big match for those guys because we heard later through the grapevine that they were really thinking about getting rid of uh, the rock and roll in the Midnights. They were thinking, you know, they figured they'd been there too long. They were kind of a stale act, whatever. And they were going to let those guys go. And that night they decided they were going to turn it up. And and they put on one of the great matches of all time. And Cornette playing the Nick Patrick and all that stuff was just, you know, it was funny as hell. And people couldn't make fun of it now looking back at it. But it was just the way it was done was done as a comedy spot. And those guys had their working boots on. I mean, you know, Ricky Morton, you know, I mean, I always gave him a gave him a hard time, but he was one of the best sellers in the history of the business. I mean, there's nobody that sold like that guy. We would go, nobody takes a beating like little Ricky. He would sell it and sell it and sell it. And he, he made it. He made that stuff work. And those guys just killed themselves. So I hold up the sign and, and then suddenly here comes Doug Dillinger. And he walks down and he's with David Crockett. And Doug Dillinger walks down to me and he goes, hey. Hey, Greensboro, none of these wrestlers know my name. It's Greensboro. That's okay, because I am Greensboro. So I said, yeah, yeah, Doug. And he goes, look, you're going to have to take that sign down. I said, come on, Doug. It's pretty funny. And he goes, yeah, it's funny. But if you hold up that sign again, it might cost me my job. They told me to take to come down here and take that sign down. And I went, um, okay, okay. I got it up. That's okay. So I took it down and uh, didn't think anything of it. And then during the Flair Luger match, if you look closely at the front row, I've got it down at my feet where you can see it. And I thought for sure that was when they were going to grab me and throw my ass out. <laughs> I think they always wanted to throw my ass out, but they never they never did. They had a chance once. with That's another story. But anyway, um, I looked over, and there was David Crockett and Doug Dillinger, and they're laughing like crazy. I mean, they're, they're just guffawing, <laughs> man. They're like, that's the greatest sign, man. Jim Hurd's an idiot. Everybody knows it. Even the fans know it. You know, fuck. So um, after the show was over, you know, it was a great show, of course. And after the show was over, we did something we normally don't do. And we went to uh, went to the bar over at the Fifth Seasons, which is a big Cory Convention Center high rise. And we walked in and uh, Mick Foley was there. He was just up from Texas. He was wearing kind of a cowboy getup. We talked to him for a little while and he was, of course, really nice. And then suddenly uh, Chris Cruz, of all people, and what was that other guy's name? Uh, shit, it's in my book. But anyway, uh, Cruz walked up and he goes, I just want to ask you about that sign. And he's dead serious. And he just goes, you know, if you would have seen the pain on his face, you really hurt Jim Hurd. You, 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 you should be ashamed of yourself. What is the purpose wow. of this? And I just looked at him and I said, uh, I said, look, man, I said, look, it's, it was meant as kind of a joke. But the bottom line is the guy didn't know what the hell he's doing. And, it, you know, I mean, some of the stuff he's doing is just stupid. And he's he's insulting our intelligence. He you know he he doesn't understand. And you know and he's like and then the other guy God, I can't remember his name. He said somebody I'll take you outside and whip your ass. Was it a wrestler no, or a commentator? No, no, it was um it was it, well, I can't remember the guy's name, but it wasn't a wrestler. Uh, the wrestlers thought it was obviously funny. Anyway, so uh, I was thinking about it and I said, well, you know, I think I could kick this guy's ass. 
And uh, and Chris Cruz, you know, I, I'm six three, six two, six three, and Chris Cruz is about maybe five nine, five ten. I I wouldn't have swung on Cruz because I, I thought he was a good announcer, but I figured I was okay if those guys started something. But it, but that you could easily light a match that night because there were people that wanted to impress their boss and stand up for their boss and maybe get a couple of points saying, hey, I beat that guy up in the bar or something like that, you know. So I got the hell out of there. I mean, I, I was like, that's it. This is there's too much heat over this thing. I remember uh, there was a group, uh, Florida group. Ron Lemieux was there, and uh, he said, "Hey, man, I, I called my buddy, and he said that sign heard enough got up, got on the screen, big as hell, man." He said, "Everybody's talking about how cool <laughs> that is, and how funny that is." And I was like, "Well, that's cool. I'm glad it got on, you know, because uh, you know, it's I think it's sending the appropriate message." So anyway, um, it it became a thing, a bigger thing, because. Somebody, uh, it was, they didn't say, Meltzer didn't say who it was, but wrote a letter blasting the shit out of me for holding up that sign. And I don't know who did it. Probably was Chris Cruz, which is funny because later Cruz and I were in the independence together. Anyway, so I'm sitting there and, and, and they wrote this scathing letter about, well, now he's a hero. Now he's this and that. So I wrote a letter back and I just said, um, let me make it perfectly clear. The reason why I did it is I don't like the way Jim Hurd's doing. I think it's insulting. And I said, you want to shut me up? You want to shut the front, the fans up? Put on a goddamn good show, you know? Put on a show that makes sense, that links together, that tells a really good story. Go that route if you want to shut me up. But if you do stupid stuff like the ding-dongs and uh, – God, what was that guy that was a, a hairdresser they got who had the lights on his boots <laughs> – Van um heavy metal Van Hammer Van Hammer who who <laughs> couldn't wrestle he might have been he he might have been a better wrestler than DDP but just by an inch but that guy was a disaster there were so many I mean the one that the one that sticks out was when we were down in Florida and they brought out Oz and we're on front row down there Bowden and um, Flaherty and those guys got us tickets and we're front row right there and. You know, they had uh, Kevin Sullivan dressed like a wizard with a monkey on his back, and they had this girl and these couple of people dressed up like the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man. They kind of ran across, and Sullivan's going, welcome to Oz, welcome to Oz, welcome to Oz. And here comes big old Oz with this rubber mask on, walking, 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 and he walks into the ring, and the crowd's kind of ooh and on because this is a really big guy, you know. And then it was so fucking funny. He takes the mask off, and it's Kevin Nash, right, with his stupid cape on, and you know, he looks like an idiot, and he's got his hair silvered, you know, kind of got silver in his hair. <laughs> yeah. And there's a kid, there's a kid sitting like three or four studies away from me, and the kid turns and looks at his mother, and he goes, Mama, that's not Oz. That's that stupid Master Blaster. <laughs> I was like, I said, from the mouth of babes, baby, this ain't getting over. This is stupid shit. And you know, but they had that match was great. They had uh, what was it? Was it Fujinami Flair and uh, the Steiners and the and the, and and Sting and Luger? Yeah. I mean, th those were great matches. So it was re a really good trip. But Oz, I mean, hell, everything about it. As soon as he took the mask off, everybody went, "Oh God, this is so embarrassing. It's so stupid." So that's really the story of the herd thing. And um, I love um, the idea and, that you could have gotten into a fist fight with Chris Cruz because he was defending the honor. Of Jim Hurt. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, funny. it was it was weird. It was it was, but you know, you can kind of see what they were doing. You know, he Cruz wasn't angry; he just acted disgusted that somebody would do something like that and publicly humiliate somebody. But what was funny is when I went to the bathroom, I had three people walk up going, "Hey, man, you misspelled Herd." 
did you go to school? I went, you got me there, brother. I'm sorry. I must have fucked up. You know, I, I, I misspelled herd. You know, I, yeah, I, I, maybe I need to get a dictionary or something because I spelled it Jim Hurts instead of herd. So um, <laughs> anyway, you know, like I said, if the if the fans knew that this thing was going the wrong way, then God knows what the wrestlers thought. And, you know, I mean, they got a, you know, Kip Fry signed with big contracts. And then Bill Watts comes in and tries to cut all the contracts. And that was his job. And then you bring in this guy, which is a, he's a total zero. You know, he's just the wrong. I, I maybe heard's a nice guy. I don't know, but the bottom line is he was just the wrong guy, the wrong, the wrong job. And why they chose him is like one of those one of those amazing mysteries of corporate America. Hey, we'll let him do it. He didn't do anything. Okay, let's let him do it. He didn't do anything. Oh, that's okay. Let him do it. Another thing so. I wanted to ask you about that came up recently on Facebook was you made a brief mention of meeting Jerry Garcia, and I heard from a lot of people who wanted to know more about that story. Well, that's a that's a weird story because at that time I was working at uh, Acme Comics in downtown Greensboro, down on a uh, on a uh, Elm Eugene uh, El- Elma McGee. It was the first comic book store in Greensboro, and we were sitting there, and the Grateful Dead had come into town for a three day uh, concert, and so they're gonna be like, I think it was like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday or something, and all the businesses were pissed over this Grateful Dead thing because all these young hippie kids were coming into their bathrooms. And basically treating their sinks like showers and leaving just the biggest mess you ever saw. And they were people were pissed over this thing. So I'm sitting there at the at the comic book store, and um, comes walking in is, is this short guy, kind of barrel chested. You know, he's wearing blue glasses, little blue glasses, and you know he's got kind of bushy hair and bushy beard. And he comes walking in, and I kind of go, oh, I think I know that guy. I'm not sure, but I I, I do think I know that guy. And, uh, and so he comes in, and I said, hey, man, how you doing? Can I help you? And he goes, yeah, yeah. He said, I want to look at your books. And he's kind of looking around. He goes, you got any EC Comics? And for people that aren't comic book fans, EC Comics was uh, a group that was um, owned by Bill Gaines. Yeah. And uh, and it was uh, the editors at that time were the uh, the great Harvey Kurtzman, uh, Al Feldstein, and Johnny Craig. And, you know, they put out Tales from the Crypt, Baltahara, um, Mad was, the birth, was birthed by the great um, Harvey Kurtzman. Uh, they also did Frontline Combat, Two-Fisted Tales. Kurtzman wrote that stuff. And, you know, Weird Science, Weird Science Fantasy, Crimes of Spanish, Shock Smith. The greatest comic books of all time, this one little teeny company from about 1950, about 1955. And he was a big fan of the EC line. I didn't know that, but he said, let me see your EC. So I said, okay. So I, we had a couple of them, and I showed it to him. And he was like, well, you know, these are nice, but they're not really in that good a condition, blah, blah, blah. And I went, well, you know, are you, are, you know, are you a big, uh, you're a big Easy fan, huh? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, he said, he said, yeah, man. I, he said, I love Harvey Kurtzman and I love uh, Wally Wood. And I said, man, I, you know, I, I'm a, I was number two in Wally Wood's fan club. And he was like, really? And so he sits down on the thing. We start talking about comics a little bit. I mean, you know, just for a little while. And and he's really knowledgeable and really smart. And he he told me he'd met uh, Elder and had met Kurtzman, you know, and that was kind of like meeting God. And um, and he was real nice, and he was really, really smart. He knew his comics up and down all around, but he was – I found out later from the illustrator, uh, Bill Stout, he knew those guys pretty well, and I think he did some album covers or something for him. He said that, oh, yeah, he said once word got out that the Grateful Dead were interested in EC Comics, all the comic book stores started uh, – trying to get EC Comics, and they doubled and tripled and quadrupled the price because those guys had the money, so they pay for them. And so everybody was making a lot of money off off Jerry Garcia because he had, he was buying up these EC Comics. So anyway, he's getting ready to check out. He's you know, and he, he hands me his money. He's buying a few books. And he hands me money, and I realize he's missing one of the digits on his fingers. 
And I'd seen something on a documentary about Jerry Garcia losing, you know, a digit, you know. So I was like, excuse me, but are are you Jerry Garcia? And he's got these blue glasses on, you know, and he goes, yeah. And I went, well, man, you must make you feel really good to know that you made the effort. You know, you're you're here for these 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 shows and they're sold out and everybody seems to really enjoy them and they really like them and everything. And I said, you know, you should be um, you, know, you should be really proud of yourself, you know, for being able to, to do this. And he goes, well, hey, man, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. And as I'm talking to him, these two girls come walking in. And these girls are gorgeous. They're like maybe 17, 18 years old, and they're wearing uh, tie-dyed shirts, flowers in their hair. And they come in, they go, Jerry, Jerry, we got to go. And Jerry goes, uh, and Garcia goes, okay. And he's getting ready to leave, and these girls start dancing around him like he's got a gravitational field. And they're da- as he walks, they're dancing around him going, da 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 and they're dancing. And I'm like, God, that's the greatest thing ever, you know? So I looked at I looked at Garcia, and he's standing at the door, and I said, is this like a uh, everyday occurrence? And he, he looks at me, and he stands at the door, and he puts his hands out, and he shakes him, and he goes, come on, John, showbiz, showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, okay. And he walks out the door, and he starts walking down the street, and these girls are chanting and dancing around him as he walked down the street. And I'm like, that's my goal in life to wherever I walk, 18-year-old girls with flowers in their hair and tie-dyed t-shirts are dancing around me as I walk. And I see everybody has, should have that goal to achieve that. So that was that was pretty incredible. It helps um, it helps when you carry pharmaceutical cocaine around with you from state to state. <laughs> well, don't whatever you do, don't try the mushrooms. Okay? Don't try the mushrooms. That's all I got to tell you. You never know what the hell's going to happen to you. So, yeah, it was he was a really nice guy. He was really sweet and uh and it was really interesting that out of nowhere this this kind of, you know, I see kids now wearing him on their shirts, you know, and I go, you know, I met that guy. They go, "What? What? Oh my god." I see he was a nice guy. I mean, most of those guys are nice guys, you know. I mean, yeah, he was he was terrific and you know, and like I only met him one time, and that was it, but that was cool. You know, that was cool. So what about wrestlers in comics? Obviously, Jim Cornette's famously known for having a big comic collection and knowing a little bit. But beyond him, are there other wrestlers you've encountered who are really into comics? Raven Raven's a big comic book guy. Um, Raven was uh, going around Atlanta and uh, buying a bunch of comics. He's into it. Uh, Cornette had, has a huge collection. Um, I helped sell some of those. I went up to his house and went up and met his mother, who was a wonderful, you know, sweet woman, and uh, and she saved everything he ever owned, his bottle cap collection, his all his board games, um, every comic book he ever owned. He had he had it. She he still had everything. But, you know, I, sometimes, you know, it's funny. Uh, the, the funny thing is you, you meet you meet comic book people and they want to talk about wrestling. You know, they don't want to talk about comics sometimes. They just want to gab about wrestling. So I haven't really met a whole lot of others that I can think of that are really into it that have come in that were crazy about it because there's nobody as crazy about it as me. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've been collecting, I've been collecting comics as long as I've been watching wrestling. We are back on the super podcast and it is now time for a brand new segment, something brand new that we've never done here on the show before. And that is pandemonium theater. Now you may be wondering what the fuck is pandemonium theater? Well, I will tell you maybe about a year ago, we discussed here on the show the idea that I had in my possession the script, Pandemonium Inc., the Vince McMahon biopic that World Wrestling Entertainment purchased for reasons I still can't figure out. 
And this script is spectacularly awful. And I said, we're going to get it on the air. We're going to do some readings. And that has never happened. Until today, with the introduction of Pandemonium Theater, and we have some amazing Pandemonium players here today in the theater. First, the man who will be playing the role of, let me get this right, the announcer in the arena, Bruno San Martino, Vince McMahon Sr., as well as Honest Abe, and that is Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey, hey, hey. There he is, and playing the role of our narrator, as well as the voice of Gorilla Monsoon, he is your friend and mine, Lou Kippelman. Lou, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, You can add Master Thespian to those credits now. Well, I will add that potentially after this. We'll see how this goes. Let's not uh, get ahead of ourselves here. This is the Super Podcast. After all, anything could happen. I will be playing the role today of Vince McMahon Jr., as well as Baron Mikel Cicluna, the random strip club announcer, and Linda McMahon. I don't know how I'm going to play this voice. I may just have to do an old trusty favorite of mine that I have uh, <laughs> whenever I need to do a female <laughs> voice. But what we're going to do is, this is part one. We're going to do the first section of the script. We're going to return to this over and over again here on Pandemonium Theater in the weeks and months ahead on the Super Podcast. But with that, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to please open your script. Pandemonium <clears throat> Inc., written by Craig A. Williams, June 19th, 2015. The following story is as true as anything else that happens in professional wrestling. Well, that's actually completely factually false uh right to start off at the top this this is somehow more dishonest than professional wrestling this script right here <laughs> but uh we will now go lou uh you are once again the narrator and howard you are the announcer in the arena so we will now start the script over black we hear Killer Kowalski is really living up to that reputation tonight folks i don't see any way eric the red makes it out of here in one piece Fade into Washington, D.C. Night. A beat-up Buick gasps through a desolate, icy street, dim headlights barely penetrating the darkness. The engine sputters, then dies, as the car coasts to a stop in the slush on the shoulder. The voice on the radio drones on throughout. And there it is, folks, the diving knee drop that will end it. From the car emerges McMahon, twenties. A silver back in a polyester suit. It's not just his mass that makes him the alpha of any room. And at 6'2", 230, he's thick as any NFL linebacker. It's something behind the eyes. Something canine. Nothing as elegant as a wolf. More hyena, maybe. A hunter desperate for prey. He takes in the blight around him, the steam billowing from the hood of his piece-of-shit car. Fuck. Why tonight? He has two choices at this point. Stand still and freeze until someone comes along to help him, or make his own way. McMahon will always choose the latter. Cut to. Slap. A massive hand. Oh, thank you for the foley. (laughs) A massive hand buries into rolls of flesh. Pull back to see two giant men panting and sweating as they wrestle in. National Arena, Washington, D.C., 1969. One is a 400-pound behemoth, Gorilla Monsoon, late 30s. Body hair where most athletes have muscles. The other is Lou Albano, 40s. Also not someone you necessarily ever wanted to see in a singlet. Half the seats are empty. Cigarette smoke filling the gaps between a mostly male 
and entirely bored audience. The announcer we heard on the car radio sits ringside, doing his best to inject some excitement into the joint. Gorilla Monsoon going toe-to-toe with Lou Albano, neither man backing down as we enter the minute 15 of this epic grudge match. As he locks eyes with McMahon, the announcer shakes his head. Cut to backstage. McMahon pushes his way through a stable of wrestlers, some stretching, some practicing their moves, others shooting the shit friendly-like while they shower up after their bout. Gonna hold on to that belt, Bruno? McMahon slaps hands with Bruno Sammartino, 30s, who straps an elaborate championship belt around his waist. Think I got a shot, Vinny. (laughs) All the greats of the WWWF are there. Darren Mikkel Cicluna. Ask your old man when I get mine. No one likes a heel, Mike. Classy Freddy Blassie, Eric the Red, Killer Kowalski, Waldo Von Erich, the Professor Taru Tanaka, and a few ladies. The fabulous Moolah, Vivian Vachon. Cut to the office. Behind a small desk sits Vince Sr., 50s, a cross between corporate executive and used car salesman. He barely looks up as McMahon enters, trying to hold on to that swagger. But Sr. is the one man who can make our alpha slouch. You're late. Car trouble. Buy a new one. You got a job. Selling adding machines? I quit that. Last week. I'm no good with fucking machines. They have no personality. I belong here. Should have been here then. Can't do pre-fight interviews if you're not even in the building. It's one time? It's the only time. Oh, come on, Pop. You're killing them out there. With fucking boredom. I'll bring some showmanship. Give the people what they want. It's better this way, okay, Vin? The only thing you hate more than taking orders from me is taking orders from strangers. You're not cut out to spend the rest of your life dodging knives in the back from other promoters like I have. Find something stable, a good government job, collect a pension, but do us both a favor and stay the fuck away from this outfit. Gorilla Monsoon pops his head in with Albano. Oh, hey, Vinny. Lou and me worked up an appetite for some ribs. You want in? I've got shit to do, Gino. Next time. Cut to. A neon Abe Lincoln winks from the back of a stage with a stripper pole in the middle. (laughs) A man's voice oozes over a PA. All right, gentlemen, we have a spicy treat tonight all the way from Morocco. Let's give a warm, honest Abe's welcome to the lovely, the exotic, Cashmere. From behind a sequin curtain appears a go-go booted stripper, shaking her tits for a clientele that mechanically slides dollar bills onto the stage for her. As we pan around the patrons and dancers that fill the place, we land on McMahon at the door. He's stopped by a hefty bouncer who stands with a man holding the mic. This is Abe, fifties, the dirtbag announcer, owner of this place. Call a cover tonight, boys. McMahon looks at him. (laughs) He doesn't have any fucking dough. Do drink minimum, then. Better not find out she's copping your fucking beers, either. McMahon removes a bouncer's hand from his chest, pushes his way to the bar where he finds Linda, 20s, a bartender who doesn't hide her killer instinct as well as her husband does. She's too smart to think playing dumb will get her where she wants to go. 
And that's some place with automatic gates, big lawns, private security. The kind of place built to keep people like them out. How did it go? McMahon shoots her a look. It didn't. She slides him a cold beer as he looks over at Abe, watching, holds up the bottle in a toast. I can't live in that apartment the rest of my life, Vince. You're not going to have to. We can always go back to Pinehurst. And die a slow, anonymous death. Hang around the table long enough, we'll get a seat. What if we don't? We'll bring our own chair. I know you want to be closer to your dad, but you spent the first 13 years of your life without him. Maybe it's not possible to get that back. When have you known me to take no for an answer? The first two years we were dating. We were teenagers. I was being a gentleman. You knocked out seven Marines at Lejeune just to get my phone number. Let's stick with the three Marines. The key with myth creation is keeping the story believable. McMahon takes in the images of Abe Lincoln that decorate the strip club. Look at Abe Lincoln. Born with nothing. Self-educated in a barn by candlelight. Still became president. That's what this country's all about. It's also total bullshit! Honest Abe, George Washington, who chopped down the cherry tree, I cannot tell a lie, all the way up to the Kennedys of Camelot! What difference does it make? You think anyone here cares that Kashmir from Morocco is really Penny Stover from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania? They watch as the stripper scoops up piles of cash. Long as you have an audience uninterested in the truth, it's fucking lucrative. The Kennedys were bootleggers and gangsters, and not only did it not matter, it made them kings. Pretty sure you boosted too many cars to be political royalty, Vince. But our son, maybe? McMahon looks up at her. Son? This is news to him. Happy news. She smiles, shrugs, and watches as McMahon hops over the bar, grabs her by the arm, and pulls her toward the door. The mother of my kid isn't working in a goddamn nudie. As they exit, they're trailed by Abe and the bouncer. Oh, you can't leave in the middle of a shift, bitch. With terrifying speed, McMahon punches Abe in the windpipe, dropping him to his knees. She quits. The bouncer barely takes a step before McMahon wraps him in a sleeper hold and drops the guy to the concrete, unconscious. What is wrong with you? McMahon looks over at Linda, who rushes toward him. She's not mad. She's turned on. She grabs Vince and pulls him into an alley behind the club. As he presses her against the wall, they go at it a bit before he thrusts himself inside her. We pull back to see, in the foreground, the unconscious bouncer and honest Abe on all fours, gasping for air. And there it is, part one of Pandemonium Theater, part one of the script here from Pandemonium Inc., the Vince McMahon story. Uh, well, we've just done it. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this, Howard? I think that was pretty uh, spectacular. So you decided to go with Andrew Dice Clay as the voice of Abe, Honest Abe, in the strip club. It was either Dice Clay or an amalgam of Tom Carvel and Dominic Valente, and I went with uh, the Dice Man at the last minute. I called it Audible. I wanted to see what felt good. And what was your Vince Sr.? 
I was going for Robert Mitchum, but I did not have the sonorous gravitas that I required, but uh, there you go. Lou, I have to say you were spectacular as the narrator. I'm going to ask you to come back next time to be the narrator once again. <laughs> but you also got to be Gorilla Monsoon. What went behind that performance? Oh, yeah. I, I, I didn't have much time to do a deep method performance on that, so I thought, big hulking dude from New Jersey who really wants some ribs. I the people want banana for you. The people want <laughs> banana for you, Gorilla. Will you stop, Patterson? Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I resemble that remark. Well, actually, I've just added someone to this uh, segment. I wasn't expecting to do this, but... How you doing, wrestling fans? It's Saturday, October 28th, here on the wrestling... Uh. Excuse me, Sunday, October 28th, <laughs> here on the wrestling hot seat. This is Dominic. Uh, today's wrestler's birthdays, the great Les Thatcher went from a great wrestler to a teacher. Um, Canada's number one athlete, Iron Mike Sharp. We got Mafia Mac, I think that's Dan Moff. Uh, Special K, Keith Shearer. Uh, we got Gantaro, uh, Linda Starr, uh, Big Daddy Sanzo. Who? Uh... Evan Ginsberg, who used to do the wrestling newsletter then and now. Ligure, MVP, uh, Rocky Romero, uh, celebrities, let's see, Jamie Gertz, Annie Potts, uh, Brad Paisley, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin. Julia Roberts, Dennis Franz, Andy Sipowicz from NYPD Blue, Thomas Hopkins. Remember? Huh? <laughs> and let's see. The day in wrestling history, October 28, 1994. <laughs> Frankie Lee defeated Roger Sartain in Rossville, Georgia to win the vacant uh, TWA junior heavyweight title. That's um, <laughs> TriStar <laughs> Wrestling Alliance. That's the name of that promotion. Of Mm, uh, put your hand over your heart. <laughs> All right. Rick Stone got it. AB in Colorado got it. Everybody that checked in got it. Al from Midland Beach. That was Dutch Mantel when he was doing the Zeb Colter gimmick. Uh, the quote for today in his promos, maybe it's not word for word, but everybody always made fun of this, that he used to say, golly gee and gee whiz. During his promos. Howard, do you know the answer? Okay. Let's see. I do, but I'm I, waiting I, to see what Tournament does. match. I think it's Kevin. Okay. <laughs> Ernie, Ernie Lamb. Uh, big Ernie. <laughs> Hello? I just hung up. I, yeah. I don't know what happened. The message cut off, and I heard a beep, so I hung up. Uh, on, oh, uh, man. The wrestling uh, hot right. seat. But there we go. I like how he said Evan Ginsburg. He goes, Evan Ginsburg, he used to do a newsletter. Then and now. No, the name of the newsletter was Wrestling Then and Now. <laughs> he didn't do right. a newsletter then and now. <laughs> it's a, he's he's um, multi-level. He's, uh, he has a lot yeah. of, you know. Levels? A lot of uh, double meanings with, uh, he's very subtle is what I'm trying to get at. Yes. Oh. Jamie Gertz. <laughs> Jamie jo Gertz. Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> oh, my God. And he's still at it. Incredible. Well, never give up, folks. Never give up. And with that said, we're going to move on here with the show. Never give up. But we will be back more Pandemonium Theater next time on the Super Podcast. But let's now go to this 
my conversation with longtime referee Jim Molyneux. A lot of people call themselves ECW originals. Well, I have someone on the line right now who actually can say that and mean it because he was there at the very, very beginning. I'm very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast longtime referee Jim Molyneux. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Brian. This is going to be fun. I said you go back to the very beginning. That's true. You go back to, I mean, where was it? Was it in the bar, those first shows? Yeah, the bar shows, um, high schools. Even really, if if you want to say an original, going back to the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance days, uh, which was where ECW grew out of. When did you start working for Joel Goodhart? Were you there at the beginning of his shows? No, uh, he had started shows and I'd wanted to get into the business and I, I wanted to be a manager. And he's like, I really don't need a manager. I could use a referee and gave me all the information about the school that he had. So he said, you know, call me back in a week. I called him back 10 minutes later (laughs) and said, I'll see you. I'll see you Tuesday night and started then. So that was 1990. And I know it was in October. I can't remember the exact date, but the first match I ever did, which would be about 10 weeks later after I started. Uh, was in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania. It was Jimmy Gennetti against Glenn Osborne. For for those who are know the uh, South Jersey or the, the you know the tri-state area of the Delaware Valley and all, they they know those names. Those are two names that were there for the early days of ECW. I want to talk to you about so much of this because I'm fascinated by everything that was happening around there at that time. But going to uh, the early days of ECW and actually how it formed, why it started. Of course, you go to the end of the TWA, and what was going on that you were aware of? I mean, obviously, they announced the Buddy Rogers versus Buddy Landell match. They had the press conference. I've seen the photos in PWI or wherever I saw those. And then, obviously, Joel ran out of money, or he disconnected his phone, or whatever the real thing was. (laughs) But what did you hear? What did you know? When did you first hear whispers that there were some financial problems? Uh, I didn't hear anything until... <laughs> until one Saturday morning after the show had been announced. I mean, full card and everything. It, it, I wish I had a copy of what the card was supposed to be because also on it was supposed to be the first time ever in America was Furness and Lafon against Williams and Gordy. Oh my God. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> I begged to, to ref that match, but I wish I knew what the whole card was if I could remember it. So there was a, Joel had a, a Saturday morning talk show, wrestling talk show. Back then, they did them on radio as opposed to podcast and just woke up and rolled over and, and turned the radio on to listen to the show. And he's talking about, well, it's been a great run and everything. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> and, and I had like all these tickets for the because he would give us tickets to, to try to sell, not not force us to sell, but try to sell for the, the shows at the Civic Center. This is one of the big Civic Center shows yeah. as opposed to the bars or, or the high schools. So I actually called him uh, in his house or his apartment, whatever we was living in, and just left him a message saying, hey, I got these tickets. Am I supposed to turn them into you or what? <laughs> <laughs> and then Buddy actually called me, Buddy Rogers. Luckily, out of the whole tri-state situation, I, I developed a, a relationship with Buddy Rogers because I lived in Jersey, and when when Joel brought him in, he wanted to stay in Jersey to hook up with family. And I lived like maybe a town away from where he would stay in Cherry Hill. In fact, it was, you probably know this place, the Holiday Inn in Cherry Hill. That's where Dennis used to do some of his events. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, that's where Buddy stayed. And I lived the next town over and Joel would, you know, say, Hey, do you mind driving around? I'm like, no. And you know, that great opportunity to, to travel and just listen to stories and learn stuff. So, um, so I developed a friendship with buddy and, and he called me and he said, Hey, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew <laughs> exactly. And, and Joel never, you know, returned any calls. And I, I never sold Joel until maybe three or four years ago. I guess it was, um, somebody did a tri-state wrestling Alliance reunion and he, and he, and he came. <laughs> Were the tickets still good? <laughs> All the tickets you had? I, I should have held on to them. You know, they probably sell them on eBay as, as some sort of collectible, you know? That's so crazy that you got to know Buddy Rogers. Obviously, he passed away, I think, the summer of 92. So this is really right, right before he passed away. He is from, I think, maybe Camden originally. He, originally from Camden, yeah, yeah. but he, he lived in Haddonfield. Um, which is a big swanky town here in, in South Jersey. And I grew up in the next town over Haddon Township and I would see Buddy in the local drugstore all the time. You know, I'd be flipping through comic books or wrestling magazines and in walks Buddy and Buddy, no matter where he was, was the nature boy. He, you know, had his chest out, stomach in and, and walked like the cock of the yard, and, you know, and I would always say, hello, Mr. Rogers, how are you? You called him Mr. Rogers? I did. <laughs> okay. Well, I was a little kid. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I, then I, you know, got to, to drive with them, which, which was really cool. And, and wherever we went, we never paid for anything. <laughs> Any diner we went to, it's on me, champ. And, you know, everybody knew him. Everybody still knew Buddy. And Buddy hadn't lived in, in the area for probably 10, 15 years. He's been in Florida. Yeah, I remember there was a story, it must have only been a year or two before this that you're talking about timeline-wise, where was there an attempted robbery in a, in a restaurant or a store in Florida, and he actually stopped the guy with a gun and subdued him? Yeah, I remember that story too now that you bring it up, but I, I don't remember the details, but I do remember a story like that, yeah. And the first words he probably said were, see, Fez, I could shoot. <laughs> Did he ever talk about any of that stuff? Did he ever talk about Bruno or Fez or just his thoughts on... So many of the stories that we've heard about, but we never really hear his perspective on. Yeah, no, not really. He he just talked about mainly living in the, growing up in the area and, you know, hey, I, this, I used to own this property over here and there was a, <laughs> it's still there. It's, it's a mobile home uh, yard or whatever you want to call it, park. And he's like, yeah, I own that. And he, we went past this place that used to be an arena in Cherry Hill. And it's a shopping center now. And he was like, do you remember the arena? I'm like, sure. I used to go there and, and watch minor league hockey. Uh, the original New Jersey Devils played there in the ECHL or whatever it was called. And um, he's like, yeah, I used to, I was the promoter for, for Vince Sr. in that building. And I also promoted the, the roller derby when they were there. I still see clips that pop up from old newspapers uh, from various towns throughout Jersey, sometimes North Jersey, sometimes South Jersey. Where it'll be Buddy Rogers has a bar or Buddy Rogers has a lounge, yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah, I, he somebody has a, a Twitter account for him and, and put, post yeah. things like that. And they show – I was going to stop – I sh should stop and, and take a picture. But they took a picture of this liquor store that he owned. And it said Buddy's Liquors or, or something like that. And I should stop and take a picture because the frame of the plastic sign is still there. But it says, you know – Pine Hill Liquors or whatever it is now. 
you know, and show how it changed. But yeah, he used to own a lot of different things in the area. Uh, he, he was, I guess, pretty well invested with businesses here. Did Buddy Rogers talk much about his thoughts about being in wrestling at that moment, about working for Joel or working with Buddy Landell? He thought it was just great that, you know, he was he was able to still get in the ring. Uh, if you remember the build up to it, there was a show in Pine Hill, New Jersey, and he was um, he came in as a guest referee for a match between Doc Williams and Bam Bam Bigelow. And there became a conference. Then there became a confrontation between him and, and Landell, you know. I'm the new nature boy. I'm the only one that should be called nature boy. And out comes buddy, yada, 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 how it goes. And that's what started it. But he was like so grateful that someone would think of him to to be involved. Because I don't think anybody did for a good 10 years at least. He left the WWF in 1983 and then he sued them right away because he slipped backstage at Madison Square Garden. It was supposed to be him and Snooker versus Albano and Ray Stevens. And then they had Arnold Skoland replace him, which, you know, the Snooker Arnold Skoland tag team really didn't take off the way I think they hoped it would. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's fun. You mentioned he slipped. That's what he died of eventually. He, he slipped in a supermarket and he broke his elbow. And the emergency room doctor, and I guess he wasn't paying attention, had prescribed something that would have reacted to his heart because he had a heart condition. and. It, it caused him to have his heart attack. I didn't put two and two together that it was another fall that caused yeah, his death. Yeah, he went to the emergency room for, he, he shattered his elbow. And I, I don't know if it was some sort of steroid or something that they prescribed for him. And um, it didn't mix with his, his heart medication. And that, that's what caused his heart attack that killed him. It's so wild. You know, you say that he was so excited and so happy about the fact that someone thought of him and wanted to include him. It's weird to think of, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you got to know him. It's weird to think of Buddy Rogers thinking that way. You know, I think the common perception may be that Buddy Rogers would shoot things down or decline to do things or right. not, not be interested in doing things as opposed to being grateful someone invited him to be a part of something. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was the fact that it was home you know, that everything involved being home back in New Jersey, um, as opposed to somebody offering him something somewhere else that, that he was grateful to, you know, happy to do it or, or you know, be involved. But, yeah, he, he seemed really happy with, with being back in the ring and having something to do. And, and it was getting coverage. Well, let's take a step back because uh, we're talking about the early days of your refereeing career. But when did you first start watching wrestling and what was the wrestling you first started watching? Oh, I, I was a little kid, and we didn't have cable then. <laughs> I'm pre-cable, so we had the WWF. So that's what I watched every Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. And it was, gee, it wasn't even until, not even when cable came in, that we got TBS right away. The town I grew up in was one of the first towns to have cable in the South Jersey area, uh, the old-fashioned Garden State Cable which you should know through Dennis and Larry Sharp having a TV show on there. And in fact, you could probably find some of those Larry Sharp interview shows where he interviewed guys like, like Rocky Johnson and Slaughter and guys like that. Um, and actually, didn't Buddy, wasn't he partners with Larry Sharp in the Monster Factory now that I think? Yes. Yeah, he was. He was the original partner. The idea was he was to build the school so that his son David could train. 
and he never really was that interested in it. So they, you know, kept going with the school and, you know, they had the first group of guys come through, you know, the, the, the Bundys and the Bigelows. And I don't think Tony Atlas ever was really trained at the school where I think Atlas was trained, was one of the last guys that Larry trained as they were on the road. Right. If that's even true, who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you've, you've heard, you sat, I'm sure you've sat with Dennis and Larry a few times to, to try to figure out what's true and what's not. <laughs> Absolutely. But let's go back. So you're watching the WWWF and then eventually you get cable early on and you get to see the TBS show. What was it like the first time you got to see wrestling from outside of the Northeast? <laughs> it was like, wow, what I've been watching really sucks. Because <laughs> uh, it wasn't even, I think maybe it wasn't even TBS. It was USA first. And at the time they had the Southwest, the Joe Blanchard promotion. I was like, wow, this is great. Because I remember the light riggings. I was like, wow, this is this is really combative. This isn't turning into what you know we know now as the WWF. You know, because those things were starting to happen. I was like, wow, this is great. I like this. And then TBS came along like, well, it's in a TV studio. Whoever thought of doing it in a TV studio? Because WWWF was done at the old Philadelphia arena. So it was done in a big arena or it was done in Scranton or in Allentown. So they were, TV was done in an arena, but I liked the smaller setting. I was like, oh, this is cool. And there were storylines that really seemed to matter. They got you involved. And I, I don't think the storylines really got you involved that much with the WWWF. Every now and then you got an angle, but really it was just squash matches and promos. And the local promos were excellent, usually, other than Backland. But you can count on one hand the angles you got in one calendar year. Yeah, but the, the, the promos I don't think were even that great because they were basically, hey, I'm going to be in Allentown Friday night, come see me. It, it was basic, you know, there obviously it was more than that, but it was that basic premise where as opposed to a Saturday morning TBS or Saturday evening TBS was, wasn't even really about where they were going to be. It was about who they were taking on and, and the story that they were, you know, the reason that they were fighting. Were you reading the magazines? By this point, I mean, were you familiar with the guys you were seeing on TV or were you being introduced to a whole new crew of wrestlers you had never heard of before? I wasn't that big on the magazines. I would look through them uh, at the at the drugstore when Buddy would walk in. Um, <laughs> I was more of a comic book guy, but you know, I would look through them and and like see bloody pictures. I'm like, well, you don't see this on TV around here. And uh, I never went to the shows. My dad's a house was a house painter. My, you know, Dusty's the son of a plumber. I'm the son of a painter. And you know, we didn't have that much money to do a lot of things like that. And uh, please, I'm not crying poor or anything. So we really didn't go. We never went to the match. I didn't grow. The first live matches I ever went to were the 87 bash <laughs> at the Philadelphia Civic Center. And the main event was a double bull rope match. Dusty and Ron Garvin against Flair and Tully Blanchard. What was that like seeing Crockett promotions at that oh, point that was in time great. live? That was great because that was, again, coming back to Goodhart, Goodhart had a fan club and he had the radio show. So if you join the fan club, you got better seating. So you get your tickets through him. And I was in like the third row. And I was like, whoa, this is great. And it's up front. And it's, you know, I'm right there. This is great. Where I think that if I, you know, you went to 
the spectrum for WWWF, you're probably in the, the second level or the, the first level, and you know, you're still 50, 60 rows back. When you go back and you look at footage of some of those shows in Philadelphia at that period of time, you know, there is at least one pay-per-view I could think of, which would be Halloween Havoc 89. First row, baby. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a little bit after what you're talking about, but by that point <laughs> in time, I feel like there's almost an established group of fans that you see at every show. You're yes. one of them. Todd Gordon. Is this when you first met Todd Gordon? Yeah, Todd. Bob Artis, Lex Artis, his wife, uh, all in the front row. In fact, I even had a piece of the... the the Havoc cage for a while. Uh, if you go back and watch the match, Terry Funk climbs up to the top and pulls a piece of board off. It's just plywood that's painted green and purple. <laughs> he, he's beating somebody with it. When he throws it down on the ground, it, it goes under the guardrail right at my feet, and I just put my feet on top of it and had it for for a few years. <laughs> oh, too bad you didn't keep it. That, that and the old Goodhart tickets together. You could have had a right. good time. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, this is when I now I started being a wise ass. <laughs> well, once you get to I, the front row, you have to be. I went to the show with the you know the the proverbial bag over your head fan with a sign that said "Ding Dong Fan Club." You were just begging for a beating. <laughs> <laughs> How did the fans react to that? Oh, they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Who loved it more, the fans or Jim Hurd? <laughs> Yeah, if Jim Hurd loved it, he would have had it on camera, and it <laughs> it didn't make camera. Other than Goodhart's show, were you following the behind-the-scenes of the wrestling industry yet? Were you getting any newsletters? I was getting, once he started, I remember um, Apter had a newsletter that um, came out, I think it was every week. PWI but, Weekly? Yeah, which was more of a, a results thing. Um, which I was interested in because I was trying to, you know, at the time, by the time it came out, I was starting in the business and I was like, oh, maybe I could, you know, hook up here or there and whatnot, not really realizing that referees really don't go from territory to territory. Right. But, you know, just interested in the different names that were working wherever. And, and like, a, you know, Joel would bring a lot of those guys in. He would He would bring a match in from a territory. You look at some of those shows, he brings matches in from territories 20 years earlier. You know, the Sheik versus Abdullah the Butcher. The Sheik wasn't working anywhere in America. <laughs> right. And I, <laughs> I go back, now you can see that match on YouTube. Yeah. And I'm the referee who starts that match, who gets busted open by the Sheik ear to ear. <laughs> <laughs> I've always heard, now you can confirm this or deny it now, because now I know you're a part of it. I heard... That Abby and the Sheik both went down there, and they sent in like every guy from the back to break them up, and they were just cutting every guy yes. they could. Is that true? Yes, 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 including <laughs> you, obviously. <laughs> well, I, the thing, okay, so so I get cut from ear to ear before the bell even rings, before Abby gets to the <laughs> ring. Right, <laughs> before Abby's even at the ring, you're busted open. Right, right. He he jumped me. I I went. I knew he was going to jump me because. Finnegan, John Finnegan came down and, and actually did the match. <laughs> so I went over to Sabu because I noticed the, the the cage wasn't that great. I'm like, Sabu, this this ring, this cage is real oh, flimsy. Oh, oh, and I get pulled from behind and put in a headlock and go down. And he sliced me one, two, three, four across the head. And I laid there until Abby and I started crawling toward the, ca the door 
and Abby stepped over me <laughs> as I'm crawling out <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to make my way up the aisle and God bless them. Spectacore security backed up a good two feet from me. <laughs> Everyone I reached out for, <laughs> they're like, Ooh, go away, go away. And, uh, I, I got in the back and, and that was the show that Owen Hart worked for, for Joel. Oh yeah. Medusa was on that show too. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I was in the locker room with, um, Owen and after the match, Abby and Owen's like, are you sure you're okay? <laughs> and they taped me up like the, the spirit of 76. And I, I went, pulled my hat way down, went to the Marriott that night and, you know, hung out with the guys and everything. And, and I come home and let me preface this by saying my wife absolutely hates wrestling. <laughs> Never, never watched it. Never seen me. Nothing. <laughs> so I, so I come tiptoeing into the bedroom, and just as I lay my head on the pillow, the light goes on, and I'm like, shit. Now she's got me, and she's like, oh my god. Now I see you've decided what's more important, and I'm like, no, no, no. It's not that bad. Look, and and I take the the bandage off. And I go to pull the gauze off and, and it pulled the scar with it. And I just started bleeding again. <laughs> and, and I'm like, ah, never mind. And I, I cleaned up, went, went to the bathroom, cleaned up, grabbed my daughter, put her in her in bed with my wife. And I slept in her bed. <laughs> you knew the sheik was going to attack you. Yeah. Didn't expect that you were going to get color, which I assume was the first time you I, ever. I knew I was. I knew I was going to get color. Oh, you I did. Okay, I was going to get that much. <laughs> was it scary? What did, I mean, you obviously you knew it was. What yeah, bleeding it was, little, was, but it was a little scary. I just I knew not to move because I was afraid if I moved too much or squirmed, either an accident would happen or he'd get mad. <laughs> so, so I just here I here I am. Take me. <laughs> I have to think the Sheik knows. I have to feel like he's the Pavarotti of the blade. Like he knows exactly what to do and how to hit oh, him. No, I, I, I look like a Manson follower. And that's before Abby even had a chance to do anything to you. So that's right. just from the Sheik. And, and I've been bladed by Abby too. And Abby's just a poke in the head. <laughs> what was the atmosphere like though, for those shows being in the ring? Cause that was a unique was crowd. A, it was a hardcore yeah. crowd. And also you have all these international stars or stars from the past that are coming in for these shows or stars like Austin Idol, Kevin Von Erich, Al Perez, just so many interesting people were brought in for those shows. Right. Well, you know, it, it really fed off of Joel's radio show where they would talk about people and, and wrestlers in, in other areas that we didn't see on a regular basis. So whoever got the most talk or was a name, he would try to bring in. So, yeah, he he had Jerry Lawler against the Honky Tonk Man. He had Austin Idol. You know, he, he brought in Al Perez. And, you know, people are going to go, oh, Al Perez. Al Perez is a great worker. I, I loved Al Perez. He, he was a really good. And, and I think that if Joel used him on a regular basis, he would have been, you know, a real prime talent for the company. He had the look, and he was technically good, but he never showed the fire. That's the one thing he was right. missing. Yeah, because he he he. There's um a match that he had at the Civic Center against um Stan Lane with Jim Cornette managing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Stan. That, so that's that's a and that's a good match. Was it an exciting time for being a fan? Oh being yeah. In there. It was great because you know you just into the business 
I'm a fan and I'm working with guys that like Eddie, you know, the, the night Eddie Gilbert and Cactus Jack went at it two out of three matches. I was involved in every part of that match, every part of all three matches. Well, that's one of the things. Let me stop you right there for some of the listeners who may not know. This was a legendary match when it happened. It was one of the first hardcore indie matches that became a tape trading classic. Two out of three falls, Cactus Jack versus Two out of three matches. Two out of three matches. That's right. I, I, I was about to correct it, and I made the same mistake. During the show, separated by several matches, they had three different matches with three different stipulations. And I believe, is that the night of the the first time I ever saw it in wrestling where Mick took the bottle over the head? Ooh, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. But even before that, before that night, before that, in one of the Civic Center shows, they had done the barbed wire match where Mick got his head caught in the barbed wire. When he would go over the top rope, like like would pull his ear, he, he did this with, with a barbed wire instead of rope. So this led to the two out of three fall, two out of three matches. And the stipulations were pins count anywhere in the building, which I was the referee for a stretcher match, which I was one of the referees who stretchered cactus out. And then the the third one was a cage match. And I was the referee at the cage. Finnegan was the referee inside. During this period of time, you mentioned that you were sitting in the front row and you mentioned some of the people. And these are names that if you were a fan of ECW, you would know Todd Gordon, Bob Ortiz, Lex Ortiz, guys and girls who were involved behind the scenes with ECW. I know a lot of the other fans who were regulars became involved with ECW in the early days. What was that like? I mean, you knew Todd as a fan when all of a sudden, and and obviously he was uh, also a backer of sorts for Joel Goodhart, but when all of a sudden he's going to start his promotion and your friends are involved with it and you're involved with it, what was that like? It, it was. It really just felt like a, a continuation of the company, but it felt closer because we were invited to be a part of it. Uh, everyone who was part of Tri-State was invited to be part of ECW. And, you know, you would meet each other at the, the matches or whatnot um, before ECW, back in the Tri-State days. You know, you knew each other. You know, Bob would ring announce, or Todd would even ring announce um, at times. So there, there was a, a bit of a bond there, and it just felt tighter when it became ECW because you were included. And you're like, wow, I'm glad they thought of me. And plus, we knew that something was coming down the line. I'd gotten a phone call from Bob who said, hey, Todd's going to try to keep Tri-State going in some form and you know, we'll just keep you involved. I, I, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And they did. They invited everybody. Do you consider it? I mean, I'm, I'm curious of your perspective because you were there from the very beginning. Do you consider ECW an extension of Tri-State? I do. Uh, the, the early part of ECW, the, the days up to um, Paul, I, I would consider even the, the Eddie Gilbert days, I would consider because Eddie was involved with, with Tri-State on a fairly regular basis. So, yeah, I, I would consider all this part of the same. Yeah, but the ECW that everybody knows, without going back and looking at the the stuff before we became extreme, you know, I, I would consider, yeah, where we became extreme, I would say that earlier stuff is, would lump, I would lump in with Tri-State, and I don't mean to say lump in, but Tri-State and that ECW are the same basic company. You were working for them. They were doing these small bar shows. You still had some guys who were stars like Jimmy Snuka come in, but eventually Eddie Gilbert moves to Philadelphia to become the booker, and you guys start taping TV for Sports Channel in Philadelphia. Two big moves in 1993. 
Was it exciting? I mean, you were there when it was just starting out where you said Todd's just saying, I'm going to try to keep it going, keep everyone involved. When things start happening, how exciting was it? It was great. We, I'm still, you know, two, three, four years into the business. So I'm still a greenhorn. And a lot of the times were guys that, that you saw on TV, like, like guys who had been let go from the WWF. We, we had Nineheart come in several times. We had Davey Boy come in several times. So the opportunity to work with those guys was, was great. So, you know, keep it flowing, moving on to doing TV. It was like one, that was one step I never thought of really. I thought, well, you know, I'll just do this as a weekend warrior and have some fun, but TV could lead to something. And I never thought of it that way before. And when we started TV, I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And it was, it was a different TV than what you saw when Paul came in. And it was the kind of TV that, that I liked. We weren't in, in a small studio, but we were in a small building. We, and we weren't in a big, in a big arena. So I, I like that confined area, that closeness with the crowd. What about Eddie coming in? You had obviously worked with him, and I don't know how well you got to know him for Tri-State, but when you hear that Eddie's coming in as the booker, what did you think? I thought it was great. I mean, uh, I love Larry Winters. Larry Winters is one of the guys who, who helped train me and, and um, never you know, stopped thanking him for that. But when it came time to do TV, I think Todd felt that he needed to bring someone in, and Eddie was one of the guys that, that I wanted to see come in, would have wanted to see come in because he had that experience with Memphis, which was a promotion that I, you know, in the tape trading days was I would try to get my hands on. So I was like, wow, this is going exactly where I would like it to go. So Larry Winters was the booker before Eddie? Larry and Todd did it together, yeah. Well, that's the thing, because coming out of TWA, you have a lot of these guys who were there for a long time, not even there, but... You know, guys who have been working for NWF, guys who have been working in the area for years, Larry Winters being one of them. DC Drake, who unfortunately, other than that one thing, and I think beginning in 95, maybe with Cactus and Terry and Sandman, DC Drake never did anything in ECW, but he was the tri-state champion and he was a big star for his own promotion. And then, of course, that goes into NWF. But when Paul comes in, it's really kind of the uh, shift from the Northeast indie guys, you know, the Jimmy Gennettis, the Glenn Osbournes, to fly-ins. Would you say? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We became, w- without going national, we became a national promotion. Those guys were coming, there were guys coming in from all over on, on a regular basis, not just, to, you know, for a spot show here and there or, you know, a big show, a big, you know, quarterly show like Joel was doing. They were coming in every week. How often during these early days of ECW did anyone ask you, hey, where's Joel? <laughs> I don't think anybody did, really? except except people who were looking for money for their tickets that they had purchased. You know, <laughs> then you had that job guy Joel Hartgood for a while. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and the, the, the actually the Mikey Whipwreck came out of that too because that yeah, idea Whipwreck. because yeah. Dennis Whipwreck exactly, and Mikey was taken from the TV commercial of for Life cereal. You know, <laughs> give it give it to Mikey; he'll try anything. <laughs> I didn't realize. I didn't realize that's where Mikey came from. Yeah. Um, going back to Eddie, though, did you hear anything about Eddie and Todd having issues? I mean, did you know anything before Eddie left that there were problems? No, I, I didn't know anything about it. You know, Eddie was great to work for because he would we would do the the show at the at the old arena, and he would come in and put on the door three weeks worth of TV. 
And that's what we were doing that night. And he had it all planned out and plotted out uh, where, you know, that, that was great. And, you know, here comes Paul and Paul's nine o'clock still right in the lineup. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but um, Eddie was ready to go. He was, he was, he was very professional. Didn't really horse around all the kid around all that much. We could kid around with Paul. Um, I don't, I don't remember kidding around with Eddie that much. What about Super Clash in uh, September of 93 when Eddie, after he'd already been, and I don't know if it's he quit or he was fired, but he was no longer the booker. His former best friend is now the booker, but he shows up. He does a run-in for the match he was originally going to be in, which was going to be, I think, Terry Funk and Stan Hansen versus Eddie Gilbert and Abdullah the Butcher, but it became Kevin Sullivan and Abdullah the Butcher because Eddie was obviously no longer with the company. But Eddie ends up doing a run-in, and I had always heard that Paul did not know that was going to happen. Eddie cleared it with Todd. Do you know anything about it? That I don't know. I knew he was going to run in because I, I, I'm i pretty sure when you say it now, I'm pretty sure I did the match. I, I forget how, you know, you do so many matches, you, you, lot, you, tend, yeah. you tend to forget them. But, uh, but I don't remember anything with Paul being upset about it. Do you remember anything with Jim Crockett? Because, of course, around this time is when Paul was working more with Jim Crockett than he was with ECW. And then that would obviously change when he realized Jim Crockett wasn't going to be giving him a lot of money to run a promotion however he saw fit. (laughs) Yeah, Jim Crockett came around a couple of times and and like stood in the back or or stood at the entranceway. And then he had that one TV taping in New York where Paul – I did not. But Paul took a bunch – a couple of guys up – a bunch of guys up there. I didn't because I didn't have a New York license. You, you needed a license at the time. I, I think you still do, but they're easier to get where it was a big, long procedure back back then. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't work those matches. When you think of the referees for ECW, obviously there's uh, every now and then when Sabu's in town, Pee Wee Moore, but usually it's you and John Finnegan. Were yes. you guys good friends? Were you guys close? Yeah, John trained me. John actually, John's like, four or five years younger than me and but he's been in the business like four or five years longer i didn't start until i was 28 and and john had already been in the business in fact john went to buddy rogers house knocked on his door (laughs) and said i'd like to be a referee how can i get started and he told him to go to the monster factory just leave the check here leave the check in the mailbox right go to the tell larry i sent you Well, you know, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I'm going to tell you right now, we're definitely going to do a part two of this, but there is one specific thing I did want to talk to you about. I'm going to fast forward ahead a few years. Recently on the Super Podcast, on one of our Star Wars episodes, the XPW-ECW incident of sorts in Los Angeles came up. I was somewhat unaware of it because I was not following closely the ins and outs of ECW and XPW at that specific time. And I had not seen the footage before and I went back and I saw it. And the first thing that jumped out was you were the referee. So I said, (laughs) I need to find out what you know and what you remember about that night and what it's like being in the ring when things are happening like that. So to take a step back from that, when do you first remember hearing about XPW and was it right away an adversarial kind of relationship with ECW? Well, I, I think it goes back to either it, a show that we did in New Orleans or there was the November to remember that we did in New Orleans. And I think that was where I first met Rob Black. And for some reason, I don't know if he was there for some sort of porn or dildo convention or you know whatever those people do for conventions i've heard of porn conventions are there dildo conventions (laughs) i wouldn't know (laughs) 
I'm trying to don't worry. Uh, don't worry. One of the listeners will let us know yeah. uh, in the comments. I'm uh, trying to think. I'm trying to think of a name that I could throw in there and say, call him. He would know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I seem to remember meeting him there. I can't remember if it was through Bubba Ray Dudley or, or not. But I think the idea was to try to get them involved in the promotion financially, kind of like the, the Billy Corrigan issue. Um, so this is, this is right around the time where it was clear that ECW needed an infusion of cash desperately. Right. And they were also already having problems with TNN, I believe. Well, I think this was before, well, if, if you go back to new Orleans, this was before TNN. So oh, this, okay. this was like, uh, I'll say it was before TNN. I'll, I'll, I'll say that much. So whatever happened there, whether the negotiations or whatever blew up. And I guess Rob Black said, well, I'll go start my own thing in California. And boom, there's XPW. And, you know, I, I don't want to say bad things about the guys who work there because they, they had their own style, but it kind of became a bastard child of ECW where they were trying to copy things and try and, but try to make it more dangerous or bloody or gross or you know whatever, where we had to, as you say with TNN, we're now on TV, so we can't do as crazy as they can, just putting out DVDs. So that's how I got to know who they were. You mentioned, and I want to go back to them in a second, they were somewhat of a bastard child of ECW. You still are involved in wrestling. I want to mention you have your own promotion, Old Time Wrestling, if anyone's in South Jersey or I guess Pennsylvania, I'll say also. Support mm -hmm. old-time wrestling if you see a show, because that's Jim Molyneux behind it. But there are a lot of bastard children of ECW, specifically here in the Northeast. <laughs> there are. What's it like for you? Because, I mean, you were a part of ECW from the beginning, and obviously, as ECW was changing the wrestling business, you were in the ring experiencing it as it happened, on the fly. But what's it like for you now when you see kids, I say kids, but when you see wrestlers going crazy with the hardcore stuff still 20 something years later, the, the light bulbs and the barbed wire and everything else. And whatever ECW was, it's a lot less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Elegant. <laughs> the stuff I've seen. <laughs> right. Um, but what do you think? Cause you were obviously involved with ECW. When you see this, what do you think? I think they're crazy. <laughs> I, the, the light tubes, the, the stacks of light tubes, the levels of table, glass tables, you know, I guess they, you know, you can't buy a, a press board table anymore. So they they, <laughs> they make glass tables. It's really crazy. And, and like you said, in South Jersey and, and not Pennsylvania as much because they have the athletic commission, but New Jersey doesn't have an athletic commission. So those guys are running a lot around here and they've burned a lot of buildings where no one wants any kind of wrestling. Old time wrestling is, I would say it's, I, I try to make it like, a Mid-South or, or a Smoky Mountain or, or a Mid-Atlantic type of wrestling company. And, and I want to sell tickets to families. I can make more money selling four tickets to a family of four than I can to some college kid um, who's looking to see somebody light themselves on fire. And, and, and the insurance is a lot easier, too. Yeah, I just I don't know why anyone is still doing it. I, I can't even believe that it's still out there. You think with so many other areas of wrestling progressing and evolving. Right. And a lot of guys, a lot of guys are getting hurt unnecessarily. And a lot of guys are doing matches that at a young age, because they want to, you know, get their names on, on the internet and whatnot, that will 
haunt them their career down the line when, you know, they're 30 years old and, and they think they should be going to WWE. Somebody brings up YouTube and says, Hey, look at this guy with a rocket up his ass. <laughs> well, we're not going to use him. You know, we'll get back to XPW in one more second, but barbed wire just it got me thinking as we were just talking about that. What was it like for you and Tri-State the first time you had to deal with barbed wire, which obviously you'd become well acquainted with an ECW. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's in the ECW logo barbed wire. But uh, what was it like for you when you had to first deal with it and whenever you had to deal with barbed wire? The first dealing I had with barbed wire was I I didn't do the match, but I had to go out and help him was the Cactus Jack Eddie Gilbert match that we we talked about. Yeah. And, And he had already twisted his head in the barbed wire and he said, help get me out. So <laughs> I'm pulling the barbed wire apart and he's kind of in and out of it. And he's not putting his knee up on the ring. He's still dangling, but he's got to get out of it. And I'm telling him, put your knee up on the ring so you can balance. So you can get some slack. And there was no slack. And I just had to pull and it just feel it stretch his head. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, that was my first dealing with barbed wire. But not your last. No, no. I, I did every barbed wire match in ECW except for the Terry Funk Sabu one. Oh, good. Of all the ones to miss, that was the one I would want to right. miss. That was Sabu going, I want Pee Wee in it. And look what happened. <laughs> not that it's Pee Wee's <laughs> fault, but no. anyway, let's get back to XPW. We're going to talk <laughs> about all this stuff at some point because I want to really hear what you have to say about that whole period of time. But you'll have to add, you'll have to add an ECW show to your your Vanguard library. <laughs> I may just have to do that. <laughs> but XPW. So here you are. You know who Rob Black is. Apparently, there was a negotiation to buy into ECW. It did not work out. They're now running their own company. Now you go out to Los Angeles with ECW for a pay per view. What happens next? That morning or or that afternoon before the show, my parents used to come to, (laughs) that sounds horrible, doesn't it? My parents come to an ECW show, this elderly (laughs) couple. Um, They used to come to to some of the pay-per-views. They lived in the Midwest, and and I have family in California. My sister still lives there, and I have cousins and aunts and uncles there. So we had a little family reunion that weekend, and they came to the show, and they're in the parking lot, and we're outside talking, and, and my dad goes, hey. See those guys over my shoulder? And there there was a group of XPW guys on the far corner of the parking on the other side across the street of the parking lot. And you knew who they were right away? And I knew we'd already seen them. Okay. And, and we're alerted to them. He says, those guys look like they're trying to start some trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad always considered himself to be a, a guy who missed out on being a worker. <laughs> like he, he wanted to be introduced as Daddy um, Dudley at one time. He thought, oh, I'd make a great Daddy Dudley. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad looked like a taller, uh, skinnier version of um, Butch Miller. <laughs> <laughs> So I go, yeah, dad, I see. We we know we're ready. I'm like, don't do anything. <laughs> Please don't do anything. Um, so we knew they were there. And so the doors open and Atlas security approaches them when they came and sat in their seats. They had a first couple of rows in one section. And they're like, no, we're here to support fellow wrestling company. You know, they they baby faced them the whole bit and they behaved themselves through the whole show until the main event. And the main event that night was just incredible against Tommy Dreamer in a Stairway to Hell match, which was 
a ball of barbed wire again above the ring. So you had to get a ladder and pull the ball of barbed wire down. So we get in the ring and the introductions are made, call for the bell. And one of the girls says something to Francine, what I'm not sure I'm in the ring. I can't hear that far. Also remember that at the time we did not use referees did not use earpieces for, we never did an ECW. So I, I have no way of talking to anyone in the back. My only communication with people in the back is through our timekeeper giving me hand signals for times. So I had no way of knowing what I should do or anything. PJ and Tommy are kind of keeping an eye on it too. And I'm really watching it and, and directing them saying, Hey, now, now it's getting close to physical. So Tommy went over there. Well, hold on. Let me stop and, you there. Cause that's one sure. of the things you see when you watch the footage, obviously just incredible. And Tommy dreamer having a little bit of a face off, but you're talking to both of them. You're, yes. you're, you're, they're looking at each other and you're telling them what's happening. Is that what's going on? Exactly. I always prided myself as being in the ring to help more than anything, whether, especially in ECW, whether it was that situation where there's a fight in the crowd and I tell the guys fight, take it down to a headlock or something, let the fight die out and come back and continue your match. Cause why should you do high spots or, you know, the main meat of your match while there's a fight going on and people are trying to figure out what to watch. And I would always watch out with ECW shit flying in the ring or people flying in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would always you know, had a second set of eyes in the back of my head. And also with the girls, whether it was Francine or, or Dawn, or even back in the, the earlier part of ECW with Nancy uh, Sullivan, you know, making sure that there, there's an eye kept on them. Trust me, Nancy could handle herself. But, and so could the other girls. But, you know, you always want to keep an eye on people no matter what. And also when we're going through the crowd, a lot of matches went through the crowd and you had to watch their backs at times. So, yeah, I, I was definitely watching what was going on and knew something was about the brew. And like I said, Tommy went down. I think Tommy went down first. I, I really need to go back and watch that match. But I think Tommy went down first and, and things seemed to calm down. And all of a sudden, swings are going, fists are flying. And it was this girl, I don't know if it was Lizzie Borden or one of the other girls, and Francine. And they pulled Francine out of there. As they're pulling Francine out of there, here comes the locker room. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. And I'm like, I'm with, I, I'm pretty sure, like I said, I have to go back and watch. I'm pretty sure I'm standing in the ring with, with Justin Kerbal going, hey, you know, we got to keep this match going. And because nobody at home is watching this, is we're seeing this, we got to focus on on the pay-per-view, on, on the live feed. So the match started and went on, and Atlas Security got our guys out of there. And as the match is going on, they escort XPW guys out through the building. Well, as they're going through the building <laughs> with the XPW guys, the ECW guys are going through the locker room, out the door, around the building, and waiting for them <laughs> at the door where they're being pushed out. And from what I am told, like I and I said, this is this is all secondhand. I was in the ring, right. so I had to, you know, had to stay with the match. In, in fact, I, that was the night I did a partial tear of my ACL. If you watch the match, I'm dragging my leg the last half of the match. 
But so as they're pushed out the door by Atlas Security, there's the ECW locker room <laughs> looking right at them. And uh, a brawl ensued, from what I understand, for a, a few minutes. And, and what I'm told is the two guys who fought the hardest for ECW were Mikey Whipwreck and Tony Mamaluke. But I can only imagine if it was an earlier ECW crew where guys like Scorpio and Tracy Smothers, you know, Cornette's told you stories about Tracy. Tracy, if Tracy says, here, hold my watch, look out, he's going to be swinging. So yeah, there was, there was a bit of a fight. And when I, when we got back after the match, everybody was back in the locker room. Because Francine got, involved with it. It was Francine getting pulled into the fight, which really got everyone to run out there. Makes me wonder, ECW had a lot of women who were not necessarily, and Francine, I'm not saying this about Francine, but weren't necessarily trained and were involved in wild scenes with wild things going on with wild crowds. Did you guys have to keep an extra eye out on a Beulah or any of the valets or managers that were around that were female? I just did personally, because I, I just felt that, you know, the kind of crowd that we drew even if they walk by, a guy could reach through the guardrail and pinch, her on, pinch one of the girls on the ass or whatever. I mean, at one time in Buffalo, Francine's up on the, at the turnbuckle, and some guy jumps the guardrail and is standing on the other side of the post right next to her. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and I went over to him, and I smart, hey, shook his hand, and I grabbed him and pulled him and held him down over the top rope until security came and got rid of him. But, I mean, he could have, you know, grabbed her. He could have had a knife, you know. And not just the girls, anybody. I mean, it was insanity. People in the crowd wanted to be involved in so much that they would jump the guardrail. That's crazy. There it is, Jim Molino, longtime referee here on the Super Podcast. A great segment. And like I said there, Jim will be back on the show in the future. So stay tuned for that. But now it is time for Book of the Week. Oh, no. Book of the week! <laughs> what is that? What is that? Hot Dog, what are you doing over there? It is I, Hot Dogula! Oh, my God. <laughs> this is not the direction I wanted the show to go in this week. Oh, last, oh, Halloween is here! Or possibly happened a week ago, depending on when this drops. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> the spookiest time of the year. Oh, Halloween, when they say that zombie Bixen Span comes out of his grave and walks all over my punchline. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 hot dog. I wouldn't say that. Oh, oh. You all right over there? I can't tell if you're being spooky or you're in pain. Oh, those rattling chains. I have a Halloween riddle for you, Lasto. All right. What did the ghost say when he saw Colt Cabana's stand-up act? <laughs> what did the ghost say when he saw Colt Cabana's stand-up act? I do not know. Boo! <laughs> and they weren't saying and they weren't saying Lou, they were saying boo. <laughs> I didn't think it would be as mundane an answer as I thought it would be, and it ended up being exactly that. Oh, if we only had the budget, you'd hear such clanking chains and howls. Lasto, I have seen things that would chill you to the bone. 
to your very bones. I have seen China's porno. Okay, hot dog. I don't know where you're going this week, but we don't need to be talking about cornholes or anything else like that on the Super Podcast. You know, just last night, Lasto, I thought I saw the great pumpkin rising up out of the pumpkin patch. But it was the ghost of Gino Moore wearing an orange singlet. <laughs> you talk about spine tingling. All right, hot dog. Well, uh, do you have any? Uh, we can we move on with the show? I didn't expect a hot dog appearance uh, this week. All right. Well, hey, Lasto. You know, I found a, a trivia question that was left over from last episode. You know, the big trivia contest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Question we, I we, left over. Well, I found it. I didn't know if you. You know, I was going to ask you if you'd like to try and answer it. Okay, I'll give it a shot. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see what this is. Okay, here goes. What the hell ever happened to the top ten? <laughs> oh, I don't even think Scooby Doo could solve that mystery. <laughs> no, no, listen, hot dog. The hot, the, the hot ten. The top ten will be returning very, very soon. We're working on some stuff for that right now, and uh, unfortunately, once the top ten returns, I think that means you'll return as well because yeah. people seem to like you, and I can't understand exactly why. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, is that everything, Hot Dog? Are you done? Yes. Oh, just one more thing. Check out my Twitter at 605 Hot Dog. Okay. okay. Listen, <laughs> Hot Dog, with that, it's time for Book of the Week. I tried to do it before, but we're going to really do it now. And this week's Book of the Week is an oldie but a goodie, Hardcore History, the Extremely Unauthorized Story of ECW by Scott Williams, the late Scott Williams. You may remember we talked about him a while back. Scott Williams put out several great wrestling books and unfortunately passed away very early. And he was someone who was a wrestling historian, someone who was actively working on wrestling projects and a really good guy. And this is a cool book. This is one of his first books, if not his first book on wrestling. And the foreword is by Shane Douglas. I think Bob Barnett is in this book, too, telling his story about tri-state wrestling when he went there. But a cool book. If you're someone who watched ECW when it actually happened or someone who wants to go back now and look and read and research things and find out what really went on, check out this book. If you enjoyed that segment with Jim Molyneux, check out this book, Hardcore History, the Extremely Unauthorized Story of ECW by Scott E. Williams. Of course, you can get this at Amazon. If you're going to go there, you might as well use tinyurl.com. So I super pod Amazon. You guys know how it works. By using that link, you support this show without doing anything differently than you would normally do. You enter tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon into your search bar, and it takes you to Amazon. Anything you add to your cart from that point on during that visit, we get a little bit of credit, a little bit of love and support from Amazon for. It is a great way to support this show. Keep this show ad-free the way it's been. No embarrassing ads, no embarrassing sponsors, just the mighty 605. What's better than that? Once again, for all your Amazon purchases, clothing, books, movies, toys, presents for your mistress, who knows, whatever it may be, whether you're a secret millionaire or a bum, if you have to use Amazon, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows beg you to support their sponsors, but most of their sponsors suck. It isn't even just the shows that suck. Now the sponsors suck too. We say fuck those guys, but when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, when you look at the big picture, the overall scheme of things, and you have to say, which show should I support? which show really delivers the goods i don't think there's any question the answer is quite obvious to me the answer is quite obvious to you when it comes down to it when it comes down to them or us fuck those guys yeah 
fuck those guys. Oh, you, oh, support the super podcast. Support your super podcast. Not hot dogs. Super podcast. But your super podcast. And with that, uh, I believe we'll be saying goodbye to hot dog here this week. And we're going to be moving on to our main event. We're going to talk about the backstory of Lords of the Ring, the early VHS cassette that was put out there featuring footage from the NWA, and we're going to talk to Jeff Otto all about it. This is part one of a multiple-part interview that's fascinating. It touches on many different areas of wrestling in the 1980s, and there's little details, little bits of information that have never been out there before. This was a lot of fun to record. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here's part one of my conversation with Jeff Otto. I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast a guest I have wanted on this show for a very long time, not just because he has a lot of interesting things to say, but also because he was one of Dennis Carluzzo's very close friends, and that is Jeff Otto. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, I'm Brian. It's an honor to be on the mothership, (laughs) the crown jewel of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and your name has come up in the past. I remember Jamie Ward talking about when he first met Dennis. You were always around. It was you and Frank Chili. And, you know, that's really the uh, the key grouping that people still talk about when they first met Dennis, if they met him in the 80s. It was Jeff Otto, Frank Chili, Dennis Carluzzo. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about that today, and we're going to talk a lot more about it in the future. But I want to talk a little bit about you and your experience in wrestling first. So let's take a step back and let's go to the beginning. When did you start watching wrestling and what was the first wrestling you watched? Age of six, all-star wrestling and uh, championship wrestling, WWWF. My grandmother, of all people, loved the midget wrestling. Sky Lolo, the Haiti kid, uh, you know, the referee bumps with Wee Willie Weber. And uh, so Saturday mornings were, you know, that, that became my tradition. And, of course, I rounded out that uh, with two other staples of any young boy's childhood. Uh, roller derby and the three stooges so uh it was, it was really a wonderful unhealthy diet of pop culture what got you hooked what what wrestling got ah, you hooked? bruno i mean growing up you know when you were a kid bruno was you know uh, he was a hero and my parents who frowned upon things like the stooges and and roller derby and wrestling uh the fact that bruno was the uh, champion and my parents being italian that was kind of a, not just a source of pride, but it was a good housekeeping feel of approval. While Bruno San Martino is the champion of this show that uh, our son watches, uh, can't be all bad. So I uh, grew up with uh, Bruno, the Pedro years, and, and just was hooked. I used to, uh, as a teenager, go to the championship wrestling tapings at the old Philadelphia Arena when I was oh, probably about 13 or 14 with a couple of friends. My parents never realized how rough an area the <laughs> Philadelphia arena was in. Uh, but this was before parents bubble wrapped their children. So <laughs> without GPS uh, and uh, hyper you know, helicopter parents, uh, we kind of figured out how to use the uh, subway system and get there for the tapings. And it was you know, some of my still most cherished childhood memories, hanging out, uh, watching the tapings and occasionally going to the live cards once a month. So. I uh, grew up a diehard WWWF fan. I, I don't think I can ever bear to bring myself to say WWE. I was WWWF. <laughs> when did you go to the Spectrum shows also? 
they when they switched from the uh, Philadelphia Arena to the Spectrum, I don't remember the dates, but I was going pretty often until uh, one of my uncles was one of the first people to get something called cable television. And the Prism Sports Channel used to broadcast the live Spectrum cards. So I could go over there with my parents. They would play Pinochle till four in the morning. But, you know, the, uh, the trade-off was I got to watch WWWF uh, cards from the comfort of uh, their living room couch. So, again, uh, it was really, you know, one of those things where you just couldn't get enough of it. Bought, you know, bought all of the wrestling magazines, you know, every Every dollar I made mowing lawns seemed to go right out the door to, to fuel my wrestling obsession. Did you like Dick Graham? Were you a fan of his commentary? Uh, Dick Graham and, and Cal Rudman were, <laughs> were an acquired taste. <laughs> um, Cal Rudman was truly something special. Oh, he, he was, uh, you know, I was a big fan of, of, of radio, so I knew that he was the Friday morning quarterback and he was the hit you know, the, the hit maker, the, oh, yeah. you know, kind of, had, but I never realized that he had uh, such a, uh, such a fond affinity for uh, the pro wrestling business. But I think it was kind of interesting because, you know, they kind of played it tongue in cheek. I think Cal in particular, you know, was kind of winking at the audience. Uh, but, you know, back then I really didn't care who was the commentator. The fact that, you know, this was, yeah, three hours of pro wrestling that I could watch on a Saturday night and not have to go to the uh, spectrum every single time. Uh, that was a treat. Well, that was what you were seeing on cable from the WWF or WWF. What else yeah. were you seeing on yeah. cable? Well, we, uh, you know, championship wrestling from Florida was another one that my cable system carried, but it was like sporadic. You would get it. I can't remember the channel. Um, but my uncle uh, lived in uh, the Bahamas. He ran a hotel, but he had a lot of uh, the Miami stations. And he was, I guess in the 60s, he started getting involved in stock car racing. He met a guy, he told me, he said, uh, he said I met somebody who's a wrestling announcer. And I said, who? Uh, uncle Frank. And he said, Diane Gordon Soley. And I was like, oh, my God. I've seen him on the uh, the, the wrestling uh, broadcast. He's awesome. I didn't think ever in my wildest dreams that about uh, 20 years later, I would not only meet, but work with Gordon for a number of uh, our home video wrestling projects. Did you ever talk to him about stock car racing? Yes. That was one of the things that Gordon's eyes lit up. Uh, sure. Yeah. I think the other was that the bar was open. <laughs> I never, <laughs> never, never was told in advance that Gordon was a man who enjoyed his uh, cocktails. Uh, but uh, he told, yes, when we did get to uh, meet him and spend time with him, he talked about his days uh, calling stock car races. And uh, it's just great because I think every time you meet someone that's one of your heroes, people you follow, probably the last thing in the world they want to do is spend all their time giving the same wrestling stories. So, uh, so it was nice to have a few other topics that obviously he was passionate about uh, his stock car racing days. So now we need to connect these two things. We have you as a fan watching on cable TV and we have you working with Gordon Sully. We have to fill in everything in the middle. <laughs> did you watch Georgia championship wrestling on cable? I did. I did. And that was, yeah, that was fascinating because you're used to only seeing Chief J. Strongbow, Bruno, Pedro, Victor Rivera, 
Baron Mikel Sakluna, uh, Sonny King, Ken Patera, King Curtis, all those characters, Captain Lou. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you would see that there was life beyond your regional perspective. So uh, getting a chance to see championship wrestling from Georgia, that was so exciting. And when you'd see the uh, promotional announcements for some of the cards, uh, I think they were probably the closest to Philadelphia was like a couple towns in Ohio. And I was always trying to figure out if there was a way I could convince my parents we should uh, maybe do a family vacation some summer near Ohio, but uh, never. Hey, let's go on a family vacation to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, the state fair is there. We can uh, <laughs> watch a uh, Ohio State spring practice, football practice, and uh, I can go watch some uh, wrestling. But uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting time because the late seventies, no one really knew that this was kind of the the last glory days of the territories. You know, cable television and, uh, and, and Vince McMahon Jr. were going to uh, completely uh, change the landscape within five years. To fast forward a little bit ahead, I guess, what's going on as you leave high school and you begin a career? And do you keep up with wrestling during this time? Still do. Uh, it probably didn't uh, help me socially, especially, you know, talking <laughs> to uh, to girls when you're 19 or 20 and they ask you what do you do when you're not studying and you, know, you tell them oh i go to the philadelphia spectrum every month and watch <laughs> large large bleach blonde uh, <laughs> men pummel uh, uh, each other but i was going to uh, college i wanted to get into public relations or marketing something in that field and i took a job at a movie theater in southern new jersey as an assistant manager so I could pay my way through college. And as I was going through school and working, every Monday night, the theater had, it was a union projectionist theater. So on Monday nights, they would send in a relief projectionist. Now, most of these guys wore overalls and they smoked cigars and they just, they, they look like dinosaurs. The relief projectionist every night, his name was John Berzicelli, came in six o'clock with a suitcase and he was usually uh, in a jacket and tie, which was completely uh, contradictory. Uh, we started talking and I realized that his work was exactly what I wanted to learn. Uh, he had two companies and he just maintained his union projectionist status just so he could keep his benefits active. But he was a, um, uh, owned a motion picture distribution company called When the Screaming Stops. And his company was most well-known for the niche of buying overseas uh, dubbed horror films and showing them on the midnight movie circuit at theaters across the country. So his, I guess his biggest claim to fame, I think it was in 1980, he bought the rights to one of these bad Italian horror movies. Uh, he bought it sight unseen at a film auction in Los Angeles. And when he screened it, he realized he just spent $25,000 for probably the worst piece of uh, celluloid ever. And he was trying to think, how am I going to salvage this? And kind of like the brilliant wrestling promoters, he came up with an angle and they dubbed it When the Screaming Stops. And he came up with, for the, you know, for the radio campaign, that no one would be admitted to the theater without their complimentary when the screaming stops stomach distress bag. So went to a printer, 
printed up 50,000 of these bags with the, you know, with the movie logo and at the bottom it in small print, it said, do not reuse. And that was part of the radio promotion. You guys are very lucky that you weren't sued by Santo Gold. Santo Gold used that as a promotion for his film a few years later, Blood Circus. He had scream bags (laughs) where you're supposed to scream into the bag at the uh, whatever the scary part of the film is. But he's also a highly litigious man. uh, You know what? I think think people who worked in the movie business, you know, especially in publicity, they were kindred spirits of people who worked in, you know, the wrestling business because (laughs) you're always looking for a way to come up with something that would get people's attention, capture their imagination and get them to want to come out. So, uh, so he was able to, you know, turn what was sure to be a, uh, a significant loss into a moneymaker. And his second business was a marketing and production company called Independent Media. And his focus with that was to take advantage of what was becoming this new thing called uh, home video cassettes. There was a lot of technology yeah, with the Betamax and the, the VCR, but there wasn't enough content. And he leveraged his contacts in the uh, the film buying world to get a production budget from a company called Vestron Video. And they were, at the time, the country's largest home video producer and distributor. They not only distributed to the video stores around the country, but they also produced original titles. And uh, John Persicelli was able to sell them on, it was the, I guess when the Chippendales were starting to become popular. Um, he found another male review troupe, and they produced a 60-minute home video program called Peter Adonis and the Male Fantasy Review. Um, so this was like when there was only 10 shades of gray, not 50 shades. Um, and, you know, he, added, you know he, he kind of had his finger on the, the, the pulse of the public's taste, and it became a very popular title for Vestron. And Vestron told him... Hey, Jeff, if I could jump in and just ask you real quick, just so we can make sure the listeners follow along timeline-wise, when would this have been? Like 1984, 1983? When exactly are you talking? I think I think Peter Adonis was around 1983. Okay. And I met John uh, the previous year. I guess it was about 82 because I was still in college and I was working my way up the uh, uh, so the General Cinema Theater's management ladder. Um, <laughs> but right. when when you know when the Peter Adonis title became a uh, popular. I don't know if it was a bestseller, but they certainly, you know, Vestron was kind of the Netflix at the time. So they were putting lots of money into creating original content as opposed to licensing movies, which could be expensive when you would bring in, you know, the studios. So they were eager for original content and he was racking his brain. And at the time I was just getting frustrated learning only the theory of marketing and public relations in college, I told him, I said, are you looking for an intern? Because this could be a chance to get a, you know, a master class in marketing and promotion. You know, I want to come up with my own stomach distress bag uh, gimmick to put right. on my resume. Right, right. <laughs> so I started going this, which was, you know, this, this was kind of go to, go to classes in the, in the morning. I would go to his office in the afternoon, learning how to write copy, learning how to do press releases, learning the marketing end of business. 
And then at night, I would put on the assistant manager hat. So one day, uh, this is uh, right after Christmas, I saw on his wall a WWF calendar. This was when, I guess, Vince began to uh, take over the promotion from his dad. And I looked at John and I said, you never told me you were wrestling him. And he came, uh, he was born and raised in Paulsboro, New Jersey. And he told me, oh, yes, I've been a fan since I was a kid. We had a lot of wrestlers who lived in Paulsboro. Smasher Sloan lived there for a while. Uh, Professor Toru Tanaka. A couple others, because Paulsboro was located in southern New Jersey. So you could get to Washington and Baltimore very easily. You could work your way up to New York City because it was minutes from the turnpike. It was centrally located. So if you were working in the McMahon territory, short of living in Connecticut, this was a you know inconvenient and an affordable town to live. So as we continued to talk about wrestling, I I threw out this idea half joking. I said, "Have you ever thought maybe we could produce a home video on professional wrestling?" And I really thought that he would just kind of dismiss it, you know. And he said. No, that's that's a really good idea. How would we do that? <laughs> so that began the process of how do we kind of like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, you know, when he repels down into the uh, supercomputer room of the CIA, how do we get in there? So that was, you know, the idea was easy. The figuring out how to, how to do it, that was the challenge because this was when wrestling was still a closely guarded business. Outsiders were rare. You needed to have a secret handshake. And most of them didn't have offices. That was the most interesting part of our investigation. You were trying to try to reach an office of a wrestling promotion, chances were you would, you know, get somebody's home number. So the process at that point was, well let's figure out if we could do it and then take the proposal, the Vestron video, and see if they would fund it. At this period of time, 1983-1984, you have no connections in the wrestling industry, correct? None. All I knew was that Gorilla Monsoon lived in Willingboro, New Jersey. But I wasn't about to start knocking on doors in Willingboro to uh, see if I could uh, gain an introduction. But this was, you know, this was pre-internet. This was pre-everything. So nothing was easily available. You really had to become a, uh, a detective. And we started with the TV stations. We thought maybe if we could make a contact there, we could figure out where the, you know, the programs came from. So we started doing that. We ran into lots of brick walls. And it became a sense of urgency because Vestron loved the idea. And they bought it sight unseen without any commitment from a major wrestling promotion. They just, you know, they looked at the demographics. The salespeople said, we can sell a lot of units. You know, this is a good sports title. It reaches all the right people. The video stores will, will buy lots of this title. So we had... And at this period of time, nothing else is out there. I mean, this is before the no. WWF has their deal with Coliseum Video. There's nothing out there for what is beginning to be an emerging VHS market. Exactly. And we were obviously going to try to do something with which we were familiar. And we were familiar with 
WWF. We were familiar with Titan Sports. We kind of started to, you know, we picked up the one of the first issues of the WWF Victory Magazine. And I looked on the masthead and I said, well, there's Robert J. DeBoard, <laughs> Basil DeVito. At, you know, I, I said, let's try to get a meeting with them. So what we did, uh, we got some copies of the Peter Adonis packaging so that when we sent them letters of introduction, Vince would kind of love see that. that we, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they look like the uh, Peter Adonis and his, uh, his troop. They were uh, actually, they look like the fabulous ones. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> wonder who, I wonder who inspired who, but uh, <laughs> we sent letters and then we followed up and uh, Robert J. DeBoard agreed to meet us. So we drove up to, I guess it was Stanford. For some reason, I, I, I thought they were in Greenwich for, for a little while. They were in Greenwich before they built uh, Titan Tower. They were in Greenwich during the early part of the expansion, I believe. Okay, so it must have been uh, there. So we did get the chance to have a scheduled meeting with those uh, those three. We met Robert J. DeBoard first, and uh, he just was as exciting as a CPA. Uh, <laughs> had no... No personality. And as we tried to talk about home video cassettes, I could just tell that he was either they were just taking this meeting out of polite courtesy or he was not interested. So we got shuffled off to uh, to, to Ed Cohen and Basil DeVito. They were a little bit more interested, but they were so distracted. I mean, every, you know, every five minutes, somebody was coming in about something. You know, there was a, a TV syndication issue. Excuse us. You know, so what should have been like a 90-minute meeting was like three or four hours because they kept, you know, having fires to put out. But we left. The, How much staff you know, we was left there? The meeting. How much staff was there at that time? It, I tell, well, it was, uh, it was growing. I mean, you know, I saw probably about maybe 15 people. There, there seemed like, you know, suites of offices, you know, definitely look like a professional business enterprise, which was complete opposite of what we saw months later when we went to Charlotte to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to visit with the Jim Crockett promotions. But we left the meeting hoping for a second meeting. And our goal was to, you know, to meet, uh, uh, meet Vince McMahon. A few weeks passed and we got a polite decline, just not interested at the moment. So our second plan was, well, there's the rest of the country, all these other territories, but it's going to be even more difficult because we don't have any relationships, any understanding of the different, you know, regional promotions. And my concern was, at least with Titan Sports, Vestron Video was located in Stanford. And we told them, Cohen and uh, DeVito, Here's the name of John Peitzinger. He's the president of Estron Video. Ask to speak to him. He can give you the scope of how how vast a distribution uh, Estron could deliver. And one of the things that I had, I still remember pitching this was I said Vestron distributes to video stores all around the country as well as overseas. Uh, so if you have any plans to go beyond the Northeast. This is a great way to build your brand, uh, starting at the uh, the video store level, and I, you know, I was hoping that might be a you know a selling pitch to them. But I think at that point, 
home video was, you know, one of a list of maybe 30 things they were focusing on. Well, that's um, that was going to be my question. Did you get the feeling that they were excited about the opportunity of home video? Did you get the idea that they didn't see there was anything there? Where did you think their heads were at at that meeting? Robert J. DeBoard didn't seem to know or grasp what this was, you know, was was doing in terms of this, you know, home video was transforming the motion picture industry. It was already beginning to have an effect on movie theaters. And we could kind of see that because John and I both had some perspective from the exhibition business. And we were starting to see consolidation and, and some of the weaker theaters, individual theaters and smaller chains were starting to succumb to the video stores. So the board didn't get that, but I, I do believe that Cullen and, and Basil DeVito did. I just sensed as they talked to us, and they did explain, as you can probably tell from our on-air product, we are dramatically changing our business model and the way we present wrestling, the way we promote it, the way we make money from it. This sounds interesting. I just don't think at the moment we're... We're ready or, or have the resources available to have a meaningful second or third conversation, but let's stay in touch. And So they politely to, turned you down, like you said, but they weren't like wetting their lips at the opportunity. They just said, we don't see this right now. They politely turned you down and that was it. Yeah, but it wasn't like they treated us as if we were just some bumpkins, you know, off the street. I mean, they, they knew that we had a legitimate product that had been produced for Vestron Video. You know, they were aware of Vestron Video as a big business uh, in in Connecticut, but they just didn't seem like they had, you know, I think if the, the staff was a little bigger and they were out of this growth, not growth mode, but, you know, that initial expansion where everyone's trying to, you know, put out fires as you grow, I think there would have been a more uh, meaningful conversation, but they didn't blow us out of the water. It was just, they weren't ready. So we moved on to plan B. And uh, I suggested to John that our best opportunity would be to partner, a strategic partnership. And one of the ways we could get entree to all the different wrestling territories was through the magazines. So I grew up, you know, having read all the London publishing wrestling magazines for you know, for 20 years, uh, I said, they're in Rockville Center. Let's go up there. So we made some calls and we had our first meeting with Peter King, Bill Apter, and Craig Peters. And this was in sometime in, uh, I think, late 83, early 84. What was that? And they were, like? oh, I mean, it's the, for, for, you know, for, for someone who grew up with these magazines uh, and, and read them uh, religiously and faithfully and to go there. It was like visiting at you know, Cooperstown. I mean, all the photos, all the people I met were names on the masthead. Uh, I'm glad I didn't mark out and say, where's Matt Brock and Liz Hunter? I <laughs> always admired their <laughs> journalism. want to meet them. Um, were you a Dan Shockey fan? Uh, he was there. I think he was there. But I don't remember the only other uh, member of the staff that we met, and it was only briefly, was Stu Sachs at the time. Uh, Peter King, the editor at the time, basically said he, Bill, and uh, Craig, 
they were going to be the three that we, you know, that we worked with. So we struck a deal that they would be the presenting sponsor, you know, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Presents. And we gave them the ability to sell the tapes in their magazines. Vestron would promote all the London publishing titles through, you know, through their distribution network. And uh, the hope was that this would give it the legitimacy with the wrestling promoters. So our goal was for Bill and Craig and uh, Peter King to look in the Rolodex and start making some introductions on our uh, behalf. And by the end of that first meeting in Rockville Center, we agreed we were going to, yeah, we were going to do this. Bill was going to be the host or co-host and Craig and I would write the program and Peter would just kind of be the, uh, uh, the grand puppet master, you know, <laughs> the power broker behind the scenes. And we talked about what could we do? And one of the things uh, I had thrown out there was Entertainment Tonight was kind of big at the time as a entertainment program. And they kind of in 30 minutes covered the world of entertainment, kind of like from a news desk. And I said, I envisioned, Bill, you would be at a news desk. Yeah, we'd build a set that would kind of, you know, have the Pro Wrestling Illustrated logo, you know, front and center. And uh, you and, you know, uh, I think at, at the time, Bill was... Yeah, they. I think they had started. He and Craig used to do the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards on some of the wrestling shows. Yeah, Georgia. Was that Georgia? So Bill was game for it, um, but I think you know, I think he would have wanted a a wrestling announcer, kind of to you know, kind of be the more you know, more the anchor. Uh, so we started throwing out, okay, who could we do that with? And we all started you know, gravitating back towards Gordon solely. So Bill said, let me call him right now. And Bill made the call <laughs> and said, Gordon, would you be interested? And uh, he said, possibly, you know, hearing it from Bill after, it's kind of like uh, carrying the good housekeeping seal of approval. So Bill said, a couple guys from a production company called Independent Media will be in touch with you talk it further. So we left that first meeting with a commitment that we would work together. We would try to pull this production off. Uh, Bill was able to get Gordon Soley, his interest, and we came up with a format, which would kind of be, let's cover the world of wrestling in 60 minutes, knowing that we couldn't ever count on any one promotion to deliver all the footage for a one-hour program. So we thought, if we spread it out and kind of give a uh, from sea to shining sea view of pro wrestling, it would work from a production standpoint. It also worked from a marketing standpoint because I think one of the things that for me as a wrestling fan that I, I still vividly remember was the excitement of seeing other wrestlers from other promotions on television, you know, late night cable, or, you know, if you happen to be traveling to another part of the country and you found, you know, the local wrestling show. So I said, I think there's lots of people that would, you know, have never seen Ric Flair in the Northeast or out West. There might be, you know, there might be some, you know, some fans who haven't seen some of the other, you know, from, you know, from the Von Erich promotion. So we came away with a pretty good format. The next step was to reel in Gordon Soley. And I think then once that happened, then we, we would be able to go to the uh, promotions with a licensing footage proposal. 
Well, let me stop you right there because I have a few questions, if you don't mind me asking, about the finances yes. behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a few of them, but let me start with what was the budget for this project, which I assume is just for the one single video, 60 Minutes? Right. Uh, it was approximately $80,000 in 1983, $84. And when you made the deal with London Publishing, did they have a piece of the back end? Or did they have a piece? Were um, they partners in it? Did they ask for money up front? No, we basically agreed that they would get a preferred wholesale price for reselling the videos. We would pay a one-time fee to London Publishing. We would pay a fee to Bill Apter for hosting. We'd pay a writing fee to Craig Peters for writing the scripts uh, with uh, with myself and. Um, I don't recall if they were a – John may have negotiated that they got a few points, but I'm not sure. It was uh, it was one of those things where they didn't put any money up, and we just basically said, you know, let's see how this goes. And then moving forward, we can kind of see if this can be a, a bigger, more formal business marriage. So it's like a barter with a few benefits for both sides. Exactly, exactly. As you start dealing with the other promotions and you have to go about licensing footage for this video, I want to know all about this process and all about the dealings you had with the different offices. But as you're going into that process of meeting these people and negotiating with them, do you have in mind a certain figure you're looking at for, uh, you know, a price per minute, a price per reel? What are you looking at offering the promoters? We want to buy one time, uh, home video rights uh, for footage and based on the production budget, you know, kind of like I was just thinking about this, uh, as you look at how the wrestlers got paid you know, if, uh, on a house show, they would come up with a formula, X percent of the gross should go to the talent. And then from there, uh, we would cover our other costs, which would include pre-production, uh, set construction, you know, miscellaneous, legal, uh, other things, post, uh, post-production, music licensing, all those things. And we came up with what we thought was a very fair formula, which was, uh, I think, a $1,000 a minute. So we planned on 45 minutes of the hour was going to be wrestling footage. So approximately 50% of the gate was going to go to the uh, promoters. So we thought, let's be as fair and as generous as we could because we wanted to work with them in the future. We were hoping this could be, you know, the start of producing additional titles. So thousand dollars a minute, uh, but we would be the final arbiters of what footage we would use. Um, so if we got poor footage from a promotion, you know, we were under no obligation to use it. So we thought let's incentivize them, make them want to give us the best footage possible because they knew they could make, you know, four or five figures from their tape library. Yeah. The central States wrestling clause. <laughs> yes. That's it should be called. <laughs> so we thought, okay, let's see, maybe this will, you know, uh, t- turn into a little bit of a competition uh, where we could get footage from a variety of different territories, but at the same time, get some of the best that we could. Uh, we soon found out that some of the territories were, not as attractive as the others. Well, I want to ask you about that. But first, 
Where was the set that Gordon Soley and Bill After sat on? Where did you film that? Uh, that was filmed at E.J. Stewart Production. Uh, it's a uh, suburban Philadelphia multimedia um, TV production uh, house. Located, they were located in Primos, Pennsylvania, about uh, 30 minutes south of the Philadelphia airport. They were known for producing everything from TV commercials, TV shows. They would also have those giant trucks that would go to the live events, you know, the live sporting events, and they would uh, they would staff the uh, productions there. So this was the big time. The set itself was produced and uh, was constructed in Paulsburg, New Jersey. We had a small group of carpenters who, you know, were able to uh, create a uh, uh, television set. Of course, one of the production budgets was you know, we had to hire a set designer and create a mock-up for a uh, set. So, eighty thousand sounds like a lot of money. In you know, it was a lot of money then, but a lot of money was going out, and we knew that we weren't going to be making a big profit on it. Our goal was really this becomes an asset that can hopefully create you know, some additional streams of income if we could get some additional titles produced down the road. At that period of time, what were your expectations in terms of turnaround? When did you guys expect to start seeing money come in? What was the lag time between when it would go out to stores and when you would find, or you know, when you would sell through magazines and when you would start seeing money? Well, Vestron Video's production agreement was based on a series of milestones. So you would get X percent of your production budget at signature of the agreement. Then there would be a second milestone, you know, completion of a script. Uh, third might be shooting, you know, pre-production. When it's shot, when you deliver a finished cut, then the final payment. One of the milestones was to deliver a two-minute sales video that they would take to the annual Video Software Dealers Association trade show. And we had to basically, at that point, take whatever initial footage we were starting to get and go into the studio and produce kind of a coming soon, of like you see with the you know uh, coming attractions with the movies. Right. So that, that was one of the milestones. And unfortunately, we didn't have as much footage at the time. I think we had struck deals with, uh, with Crockett and uh, Von Eric World Class, and they had sent us some footage. So we had to basically go into the editing suite, literally scanning footage in the editing suite. So normally, you know, they would burn a time code version, and then we would take it back, screen it on our TV set at home and start looking at footage so you could at least narrow it down. Uh, but we had literally four days to turn around raw footage into a two-minute sales piece in order to make this uh, one of these uh, payment milestones. So it took us this is before you could do all this stuff on your computer or your iPhone. Right. Uh, we were in, we went in at eight o'clock in the morning, left four 30 in the morning. The next day we were in an editing suite, only stopped for bathroom breaks because this was like so tight. And thank God our uh, production uh, editor at the time, he had the, yeah, the stamina and the, <laughs> the, the the constitution to, to hang in there. 
he said he had never gone through this long an edit, but he did. Uh, and that was one of the, you know, one of the deliverables. So we want to keep getting more of the production money coming in. But afterwards, it was kind of like book publishing. Uh, book publishing, you would get an account statement twice a year. Number of units uh, based off of your advance. Then the formula would calculate for returns because, you know, like books, video store owners could return titles. And we had to deal with dis- distributor fees, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood overhead. So we knew the first one, we would be lucky if we saw any <laughs> any money coming in because this was just a, 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 the video variation of Hollywood accounting. I want to know about how you made the deals with the various promotions to get their footage. So let's start with Jim Crockett and Jim Crockett Promotions. For Crockett, it was an opportunity to do the uh, meeting face-to-face. Uh, Bill Apter and Craig Peters and Peter King had made the calls of introduction uh, on our behalf. So uh, John and I flew into Charlotte and we drove in and uh, immediately thought we were lost because we were at a what looked to be a converted 7-Eleven on Briarbend Drive. <laughs> I said, this can't be it. <laughs> We, our last time we went to a wrestling office was uh, Titan Sports in Greenwich, and this looked like a, a very modest arrangement, but we were able to sit down with uh, Jim Crockett Jr. Um, it was pretty cool because as we were walking towards his office, we had to go through the interview area where they had the uh, interview backdrop, and I saw, I guess it was Gene Anderson. I'm kind of marking out. I didn't want to you know, again, uh, try to maintain your professional composure. But on the other hand, in, deep inside, you're just bursting, you know, geeking out with, you know, these are these are people you read about in the magazines. And, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm just like literally three feet away from Gene Anderson. So it's like when the Rolling Stones went to Chess Records and Muddy Waters was painting the ceiling. <laughs> like, yeah, well. That's the kind of the, the yeah. thing, you're, you know, but he was still there. And we, you know, we talked with Crockett. He was not exactly the most uh, gregarious of uh, personalities. It's been I said before. Tell, <laughs> I couldn't tell if um, it was because he didn't know us and, you know, you're being guarded, especially protecting the business or was a dry personality, his, his real self. So we didn't get that warm feeling that we got when we went up to see Cohen and DeVito at, at Titan Towers. So was it just Jim Crockett Jr. in the meeting? Just Jim. Yeah. Yeah. There was no one else. Uh, we explained what we were doing, you know, and he mentioned that Bill, Bill Apter's word carries a lot of weight in Charlotte. <laughs> So that's why he agreed to the meeting, and uh, we had a good meeting because he basically said, I'm going to have my people go through the library and pick out reels of our best footage for you. So I can't uh, fault him for, you know, he certainly knew personal, dry personality notwithstanding. Uh, he certainly knew that we needed good material, good content to make this production work. And uh, he made sure that uh, whoever was going to go through the tape library was going to be picking out the best footage possible. So we flew back to Charlotte that night and uh, we said, okay, that's one down. Now we need a few others. But for instance, um, Florida, that was about the time when Eddie Graham, who would have been an important person to be dealing with, was dealing with some, you know, some of his own 
problem. So we, we couldn't reach him. And, you know, after a while, even with a introduction from London Publishing, if you're not getting return calls, you kind of know, okay, we need to move on. Uh, couldn't do anything with, uh, with Vern Gagne, but we knew sort of, uh, what does that mean? On. What does that mean? Couldn't do anything with Vern Gagne. He wouldn't work with you guys or what is, didn't understand it. Clearly didn't understand it. And then we, uh, talked to someone, I, I can't remember who it might've been like an Al Darusha, somebody from the actual production uh, side of things, Yeah, production side. And I think after about the third or fourth time we did call them, they, they kind of just had no interest. They said, what, what do you mean video at home? So at that point we were under a, you know, kind of a deadline. We wanted to get the production in the can because then all the money that, you know, all the expenses we had uh, outlaid, we could fund everything and uh, hopefully have a little bit left over as our profit. So we started looking at Crockett footage, World Class, and Memphis. We got Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. And so Bill, after basically said, if you get those three uh, as the core, you're in pretty good shape. You'll do well in terms of having enough to fill those 45 minutes. So we still continue to try to, you know, Joe Blanchard, Don Owen. Uh, we got footage from Bob Geigel from Kansas City. Mm. And we, mm. we, yeah, the <laughs> NWA president. <laughs> and I had to, the, Brian, to show you how much of a rube I was at the time, uh, you know, reading the wrestling magazines, you know, Bob Geigel was the NWA president. And I told John Berzicelli, I said, John, even if this footage is unusable, and we pretty much found out instantly, it was like the best of Bulldog, Bulldog Bob Brown or something. <laughs> oh, uh, God, that's awful. <laughs> I said, I said, we still should pay him a few thousand bucks. And then we could just tell him that the footage, you know, we were against time, but there's a goodwill gesture. Uh, you know, we still feel you should have the money. Let's continue to work together. I think, I think we ended up like sending him a check for $4,000. Never once had any interest in using the footage, but I thought that would kind of grease the relationship so that we would have political sway with the president of the National <laughs> Wrestling Alliance. So I, I cost independent media about four grand, you know, with the, being a mark. <laughs> Did you let anyone know about that? Uh, not till years later, <laughs> but John understood that this was a closed society. I mean, you, we were kind of giggling that here we were a couple of outsiders and we're producing a, you know, home wrestling program and we had been given the secret handshake. So part of that process was, well, it never hurts to make it known that you're there to help them financially. So I think we would have done it anyway, but I didn't realize how literally he was a figurehead. I thought that this was something, you know, like a president of a, of a real company or a real organization. You treated him the way he always hoped to be treated. <laughs> yes. Probably for, you probably, you know, he probably hadn't had a $4,000 uh, gross house in uh, that territory uh, that whole year. How did you make the deals with Fritz and with uh, the Memphis promotion, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler? Jarrett and Lawler were easy because we talked to them directly. Jerry Lawler particularly had such a high regard for Bill Apter. And I think 
the Andy Kaufman you know, relationship really made us recognize years later why Bill would always have a you know special spot in Jerry Lawler's heart. So they started almost immediately saying, they, they used to call him Willie. If Willie Apper says uh, we should do this, let's do it. So they started sending us some of the, uh, you know, the great footage, uh, you know, the Kaufman feud. The thing that I vividly remember was uh, Randy Savage pile driving Ricky Morton through the announcer's table. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was never, a big deal at the time. Never saw that in the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, uh, you know, we started getting footage from there. Only had one call with, with Fritz, and he immediately put us in touch with uh, Ken Mantell and said, talk to him after I explain what we're doing. And Mantell, when, when we called, he was great to work with. He said, we'll get you the Texas Stadium uh, show, and we'll even see if we can get the footage where Kerry drops the belt back to Flair in Japan. Yeah, you got that from All Japan. And... I remember talking to Mantel and I said, look, our contract, one of the claims is that we can't be held liable for unlicensed footage. If you give it to us, it's with the legal understanding that you have rights to this material. And he said, yes, we're good. I don't think he had any rights to that footage whatsoever. I know. I know. That was owned by Nippon TV. (laughs) Exactly. So we were... You know, and and licensing was extremely critical. And here's another example, Brian, of what happens when you don't have everything buttoned up. We went into the packaging design, and what Vestron Video wanted was send us photos from London Publishing of some of the best action shots and and stage shots, so we can start you know to do the design and layout of the packaging. So. They did, and one of them included a, a menacing photo of King Kong Bundy. Of course, wouldn't you know it, on the eve of the uh, distribution, after the packaging had been produced, uh, we get a angry call and nasty letter from King Kong Bundy's lawyer saying that this was unauthorized use of his likeness, and they were going to take us to court. What did you do? Oh, <laughs> well, we did what, uh, uh, what what normal, you know, mature human beings do. We ran around like our hair was on fire. <laughs> and then we called Bill after and said, Bill, we're in trouble. And here was the thing. I mean, his manager or his trainer was Larry, pretty boy Larry Sharp. Larry Sharp was born and raised in Paulsburg, New Jersey. He and John Berzicelli were friends. Uh, the Monster Factory training facility was right down the street from John's office. They ran into each other at the local 7-Eleven, that type of thing. So there was a long history in a relationship. And we asked Larry, could you kind of call off the wolves here? We're in a tight spot. And, uh, uh, you know, he couldn't do it. So then we talked to uh, Actor and uh, uh, Craig Peters and Peter King, and we said, does Bundy understand that this creates ill will from one of the you know, major ways that wrestlers get publicity? Can, can we kind of infer to him that can we you know, make this go away and 
you know, you'll you won't be persona non grata in the uh, London publishing magazines. The lawyer was like a dog with a bone. You know, wouldn't let go. So finally, we had to go back to Vestron and said, we're going to need a couple thousand dollars to make this uh, problem go away. They wrote the check, but it was, a, you know, it was about a week of anguish because we couldn't distribute with any legal claims against the production. Vestron was explicit with that. But, you know, it's kind of like you can't buy a house that has a lien on it. You know, the title company has to make sure they have a clear, clean title. So thankfully... The ambulance chasing lawyer got a few bucks for Bundy, and we were able to move on. But uh, rights footage was something we didn't realize until afterwards that maybe <laughs> maybe dealing with wrestling promoters, you weren't going to be working with people who care about not even the spirit of the law, let alone the letter of the law. So, yeah, we were, uh, we were lucky that uh, All Japan never made an issue of the uh, footage uh, that was in the final program. You said Fritz passed you off to Ken Mantell. In the conversation you had with Fritz, did he immediately agree to this? Did he get it? Did he care? Yeah, he did. We kind of, you know, and, and one of the things that we did talk about was the world-class championship wrestling brand would be on video in every video store across the country. And if you have any plans to go beyond your current footprint, uh, what better way to start building awareness and he got it he said well we just might be doing that because this was about the time when vince jr was starting to encroach on other territories so suddenly that issue you know that opportunity became a selling point for us so he got it all he cared about was you know initially money okay thousand dollars a minute yeah yeah uh, th this was like for for them this was found money. You know, it was like cutting the sleeves off the vest. For us, we were getting content from the Von Erichs, and we knew that having Kerry Von Erich and the Von Erich boys and the Freebirds and the Missing Link, and they had such great production values, too. So we knew that uh, if we could get that on there, it would certainly guarantee the high level of quality the best round was expecting. So you made the deals to license the footage. How did you get the actual footage and what was sent to you? Was it a master? Was it a dub off master? What did you get and how did you get it? Well, we started, the, the UPS uh, driver started within a few days of these telephone agreements. Footage would just start showing up. Um, you know, we got a whole number of one-inch reels from Channel 39 in Dallas. I had no idea. There wasn't any letter to come with it. It was just footage. You know, we'd see stuff from Kansas City. We'd see stuff from Memphis, uh, you know, so in Charlotte. So nobody was like giving us like a uh, shot list or footage list. It was like, okay. And in most of the cases, it was the original footage. They didn't burn they sent up. sent you the masters. Yes. Wow. Foolish. <laughs> you should have kept them. Do you have them? Yeah, we could have. Uh, <laughs> no, no. We sent them back foolishly. We could have renegotiated the. Uh, uh, you know, if we wanted to renegotiate the rates down to like maybe $500 a minute, uh, we could say, and that includes the safe return of your master tapes. But what we did was we burned, you know, we burned dubs and, you know, sent it right back. Because once we found out that these were masters, you know, I kind of knew from a history perspective. I remember reading about all the original Johnny Carson shows got taped over kind of thing. To me, I thought, 
this is precious cargo. Let's get it back to them as, as quickly as we could. So once we did, then we go to EJ Stewart video, burn VHS uh, time codes. And I think we had about 20, maybe 25 hours of uh, footage from those three plus Bob Geigel <laughs> and a few other, you know, the smaller promotions we started looking at. And it was a uh, childhood dream sitting there uh, in a room watching wrestling 10, 12, 14 hours straight. That's how you made the deal with all the wrestling promoters. One thing I remember about the video was you had a George Thurgood video, Willie and the Hand yes. Jive, that was on there. Did you mm -hmm. also work on that, or was that something sent to you that was already done? How did that work? At the time, MTV was, was starting to explode, and I remember reading that George Thurgood and the Delaware Destroyers, you know, so he was, he was local to us Philadelphia folks, uh, was a wrestling fan. I don't know whether it was that he went to wrestling matches or he was friends with wrestlers or wrestlers came to you know, his shows. I just knew that he was connected. So called a couple people at the Philadelphia rock stations in Philadelphia, WYSP and WMMR, and explained what we were doing. And I said, if you have any connection to this record label, I'd love to talk to somebody in the radio rep, you know, field that could possibly bring a proposal to Thurgood. Maybe we could license his music for the end credits. Um, so we got in touch with Rounder Records and the agent or manager for Thurgood called back and he said, yeah, George is a big wrestling fan. What are you interested in doing? And we explained to license a song for the end credits, but we would create with wrestling footage a video, a music video that you could use. And he said, well, it's exactly what we were going to propose to you. We don't have the big budgets that the big you know, labels do for their top stars. You know, at, at that point, you could spend fifty dollars to $100,000 on a music video. And the record labels were doing that. But you know, Thurgood was with Rounder Records, which was a little bit of a smaller enterprise. And they said we had shot this, uh, start shooting a video for Willie and the Hand Drive. And all it is is just him singing in a club with uh, couples dancing. Um, what could you do with it? And so they sent it over, and I thought, well, Hand Drive, I'd just seen hours of Dusty Rhodes doing the doing that, uh, um, don't know what that move is. The flip-flop and fly? Yep. Okay. So I, uh, I, I told John, I said, we have all these time codes of different wrestlers doing something with their hands. I said, we could certainly mix in about half, half the music video could include wrestling footage and we could easily do that. It won't add any production cost to the production budget. And Rounder Records is going to think that, you know, we're, we're basically creating this big time music video for them. They don't realize we're already halfway there. So I could go back and pick out Dusty Rhodes, Dick Slater, uh, Bugsy McGraw, uh, Kabuki, you know, all the ones and, and easily create a wrestling segments within the, you know, the, the video of him singing hand drive in the club. So they said, great. So that's how we struck the deal. So we got licensing rights to Willie and the hand drive. Uh, they got a completely different 
type of music video that they could uh, bring on to MTV rotation. And then as we were working with them and, and talking about how we could, again, promote it, and we did get all the, we told them, we said all the wrestling promotions will agree to run the music video in their program. So George will get exposure in the Carolina promotion and Memphis, uh, Texas, uh, any of the other promotions that become part of the program. You know, they were thrilled. And then they called back, I guess it was about two weeks before the, the uh, Lords of the Ring was going to be launched to video stores. They said they were able to get NBC Friday night videos to run this and promote coming soon to home video from Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Lords of the Ring, Superstars and Super Bouts, George Thorogood's Willie and the Handjob. And they said, you just need to get them a one-inch master, send it up to uh, NBC by, you know, by the state. So three days before the, you know, the home video was made available in uh, stores around you know, the nation, NBC Friday Night Videos aired it. Uh, it was the last video, so it, it aired at like 12, 12.30. It included the packaging. It included the logo. and about two and a half minutes of the uh, the video. So it was pretty cool. In terms of the packaging, who picked the photos that you guys used? The fabulous ones, the Road Warriors, Flair versus Kerry? Those were Bill and Craig and Peter King. They were the ones that gave the preliminary guidance to Vestron's graphic design department. So they had other options to work with, but it was kind of like Bill would say, you want to include, you know, Flair and Steamboat. You want to include the Road Warriors. You want to include this one. Uh, so Vestron, not being wrestling savvy, uh, followed London Publishing's uh, advice. The, the one thing for the packaging, which I still laugh because I gave him the nickname, but Gordon Soley, you know, we were trying to come up with copy for the uh, co-hosts of the program. And I just remember... Gordon was very serious and he was very much like Walter Cronkite. So in the copy, and this is, you know, this is really for me. I wanted to have something I could put in my portfolio when I got into the real corporate world. I wanted to be able to have a packaging that I wrote copy for. And I called Gordon Soley, the Walter Cronkite of professional wrestling. And it would tickle me because that nickname kind of stuck with him for a few years afterwards. On the commercial for sales of the VHS, it's uh, listed as Department J, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So would that have been going to you guys? Yeah, that was one of the ways we wanted to try to have an additional revenue stream other than the uh, licensed partnership agreement with Vestron. So like London Publishing, we were able to get a preferred wholesale price. And I think the I think it initially started out as forty nine ninety five or fifty nine ninety five. So we would get it for essentially what the distributors were getting it, which was fifty percent of the list price. And we started to sell directly. I think we probably moved maybe, you know, it was under a thousand units. I don't remember you know, spending a lot of time being at the post office sending those things out, but they did, you know, we did set up an eight hundred number and a telemarketing order-taking service to sell directly to consumers who wanted to have a copy other, you know, instead of just renting it at the video store, we thought maybe we could make money, have people who are collectors who want to own 
their own copy. Obviously, early on in the process of trying to put the deal together, you met with executives from Titan Sports. You did not make the deal. At any other time, do you hear from them or do you talk to them? Because obviously, as you're putting this together, they're ramping things up. And also, word's getting out that you're working with all the other promotions. Do you hear from them again? Oh, we did, Brian. It was it was, it was telling, and uh, I guess this was about maybe three weeks before the first WrestleMania, uh, and we had already, you know, we're moving forward on Lords of the Ring NWA version, and we get a call from Ed Cohen, and you know, said we've given more thought to your proposal. We'd like to counter with a an offer to you. We'll give you complete rights to our entire video library, but for $100,000. But we need to have an agreement and funds in place within seven days. Wow. So this is the run-up to WrestleMania. I mean, it's kind of something people have talked about where there was a cash crunch. Vince was saved by the fact that Jim Crockett Jr. paid him a million dollars for the TBS time spot, and he got the money from Antonio Inoki for the New Japan booking fee a little bit before that. But Right. I had never heard this before. So right before, three weeks before WrestleMania, approximately. It was, yeah, it was, it, it was pre-WrestleMania. And we immediately called on the publishing and we talked to uh, Peter King and Bill Apter and Craig Peters and said, what are you hearing? And they said, there's serious concern and significant financial stress to, at Titan at the moment. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You have to get Vestron video to make this deal. This could be the foot in the door you know, with Titan. We went back to Vestron and talked to uh, John Peisinger, pleaded with him, saying, you're going to have a video pipeline for multiple titles. This, this company is, is going to, uh, you know, if they don't, you know, if they don't succeed, you're still going to have lots of titles to produce because uh, they will never completely go out of business. They'll just restructure and reorganize, uh, but you'll have that relationship. And if they do succeed with WrestleMania, with all the closed circuit sites, and this becomes a non-issue, you still become the you know home video production partner for the fastest growing professional wrestling promotion in the country. So there's no downside. For them, six-figure uh, checks were for distributing movies. They couldn't bite the bullet on an original program, even though over the course of X number of titles, that cost would be amortized. So to them, we were trying to tell them, it's not 100000 for one video. This is $100,000, which gives you the rights to WrestleMania, gives you rights to their tape library. It gives you rights to the history of the WWF and WWWF. You know, we could just cherry pick what we want to do, but they just couldn't do it. I think the fact that it was an urgent decision, we need to know like really, you know, like yesterday, it pushed them and we couldn't get Vestron to wrap their heads around, you know, move quickly. You know, this is a no-lose situation. Did they make any kind of offer at all? No, they just kept looking at $100,000. That's a lot of money. But they would have no problems writing a check for seventy, dollars $80,000 for an original program. Uh, they just thought, well, we're doing this Lords of the Rain. Let's see how this one goes. So they didn't have sales numbers. 
to give them that level of confidence because they were they were new to so many different genres and pro wrestling you know, being the first home video title wasn't something that they were able to look at you know here's what we did with the first title we sold you know 12,000 units and grossed this amount and they didn't have any of that so we were essentially asking them to gamble a hundred maybe you know two hundred thousand dollars on a genre that there was no precedent in terms of financial performance. And of course, shortly after this, they would make a deal with Coliseum Video and they would get the rights <sighs> to the WWF for years. <laughs> I know. And I, <laughs> I, I moan that fact every day, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you would have had access to that entire library. Exactly. It would have been independent media home video, but things work out for a reason. I think just... The fact that we were able to get the first production done, actually getting through the production, uh, we flew Gordon in the day before. Uh, Craig and Peter and Bill uh, came down. So we had a dinner, a team dinner at a Chubby's restaurant in Camden, New Jersey. But it was like one of New Jersey's last great legendary steakhouses. So we take them all out to dinner. And it was still early, and Gordon wanted to go out for a nightcap. So... John said, here's the credit card. Take Bill and Craig and Gordon out for a nightcap and just get them back to the hotel. We have a call time of 8 o'clock. I said, no problem. So we ended up going to a piano bar in Atco, New Jersey. And I didn't realize that Gordon not only enjoyed his cocktails, he also enjoyed a piano bar. So that night... Gordon loves jazz. Yes. Yeah. Well, the piano player and Gordon struck up a bond and Gordon was croaking out tunes with, with Bill <laughs> till two in the morning. And I paid a hundred and I guess it was about $150 bar tab, which is not that much, except when you factor in that Bill after doesn't drink. <laughs> I wasn't drinking. <laughs> I think Craig had a couple beers, but nothing. And Gordon was on I mean, stage singing. Yeah, and Gordon was on stage singing. <laughs> I mean, and there was this this woman who, if you remember the Billy Joel's Piano Man song, that's kind of what this crew was. There was a bunch of scragglers. I don't think any of them knew who Gordon Soley was, except they all gravitated towards him and Bill. And, you know, so he was making small talk with this woman and, you know, they're singing and, you know, it was just, it was surreal. And I'm thinking, we're not going to, you know, <laughs> I got them back to the hotel. It was about two 30 in the morning. I didn't know how they could even stagger out of the car to their rooms. And I'm thinking this, this is going to be a disaster because, Gordon will will not be in physical mental shape to do the uh, the the taping, and I picked him up at seven thirty as we're driving over to uh, E.J. Stewart's uh, studios. Gordon was as composed and sober and as straight as a minister. He would have had no clue that he just closed down a piano bar with. <laughs> He was perfect, flawless. Uh, he he was he was just a gem, uh, you know. One take, uh, one take, Gordon. But it was, uh, you know, it was exciting for me to be able to say, not only did I hang out with Gordon Soley, I hung out with him at a piano bar, and uh, he was regaling us with stories of, you know, the Florida territory and 
all the, you know, all the things. And I just kind of felt, oh my God, just a few years ago, I was just watching this stuff on Saturday morning, probably a few years past what I should have been, you know, everyone says after a while you should leave your childhood behind, but I could never do that with wrestling. But here I was with one of my heroes growing up, um, hanging out with him and becoming friends with uh, Bill After and Craig Peters, who wrote the magazines that really, you know, uh, kind of uh, marked my connection to uh, to wrestling. To close the door on Lords of the Ring for this week, was everyone happy with the way it came out? Did you hear any feedback from any of the promoters, from PWI? And also, if you can divulge how many units it sold? I think everybody from a quality standpoint was very happy. Best Run Video was happy. It was profitable immediately. It sold, I think its first initial shipment of 5,000 units uh, was, you know, kind of like in book publishing. They're willing to do second and third printings, but they're not going to do a massive printing commitment of books until they know that they're able to see a a market exist for it. I think we eventually sold under 20,000 units. Now, at that point, Brian, the industry was built towards the rental market. So everything was priced $39.95, you know, So a video store would buy a tape for $60 and they would turn it over three bucks per night rental. So the video stores were happy. As a matter of fact, they came back almost immediately saying, do you have any more wrestling titles? This works. So we were pleased with that. I think... The three promotions of you know, Jared and Waller, Crockett and Von Eric were happy. Bob Geigel was happy. He made, you know, <laughs> he made about four thousand dollars not doing anything, thanks to me. Um, London Publishing was happy. I mean, because this was kind of a brand building opportunity for them. And now I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to ask uh, Bill and Craig to uh, reveal what kind of sales they got out of selling direct. But I remember they they did add you could get your own Pro Wrestling Illustrated T-shirt as part of the package, which was cool. So I think overall everybody was happy. We made a little bit of money, of course. You know, six months and and then the twelve month mark when we started to see the sales performance. You know, you get your account statement like a Hollywood studio, all sorts of overhead was working its way in. But we really wanted to do a couple things. One was to produce something that would give us a chance to do a second one. Because you figure if you get your foot in the door, you treat the first one as a loss leader, you figure out how to make money on the subsequent titles. Uh, And for me, it was really about getting some stuff on my resume. I was able to say, I wrote scripts for a television production. I wrote copy for a dust jacket, you know, for a video. Uh, wrote copy for a promotion, you know, sales promotion video. Did script writing for the actual show. Got experience working in video. So all that to me was more about helping me for a career. I had no expectations that I could ever get into wrestling production full time. It would have been great, but I was realistic. There was tight, closed society. So I think overall, we were happy. And the fact that we were able to get a, a second and third act out of that was uh, was good. And 
And to me, it gave me a chance to meet Dennis Corlozo, which was probably one of the greatest uh, and most cherished uh, things that came out of that whole home video chapter in my life. Boom! There it is, part one with Jeff Otto. Part two will be coming at you very, very soon. All about Lords of the Ring. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think everyone will really dig the next part. Part two talking all about Great American Bash 1985 and how that video came to be. We're going to also talk about Dennis Carluzzo, Memphis Wrestling, and so much more in the future. Check that out. Big thanks to Jeff Otto, a good friend, for doing the show. That was a lot of fun. As we wrap things up, I want to thank everyone for supporting this show. We've had a lot of new listeners jump on the mothership in the last couple months. I want to thank them. They're going through the archives. I hear from them. They say, hey, did you ever figure out who Yo Mamba is? And the, uh, the answer, of course, is no. No, we still have no idea, and we have no clues either. So uh, thank you all for that, and thank you to everyone who has bought a T-shirt recently, especially the Mothership Baseball shirts. This has been a uh, very successful period of time for 605 Gear, and I appreciate everyone supporting the show and uh, supporting my family by supporting the show. So I really do appreciate that. Thank you all so much. We have some really cool segments that will be coming at you in the weeks ahead. I've been recording a ton of stuff, and I can't wait to unveil many of these segments to you on future Super Podcast episodes. As we close things up, I want to remind you the show is on Twitter, the page at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast, and you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at 605pod. You could join the Facebook community for the page, facebook.com slash superpodcast. Hey, where's the show? The best chance you have of getting an update is at facebook.com slash superpodcast, artwork, photos, and so much more. It is the online central hub for social media and the superpodcast, facebook.com slash superpodcast. Want to remind you, we talked about t-shirts a little bit earlier. If you want to support the super podcast with a super podcast logo t-shirt, a mothership t-shirt, bumper stickers, or whatever it may be, you can go to the official online store, tinyurl.com slash superpod store that is the place to go for all your super podcast merchandise needs all shirts personally folded by the paper bag assassin hey by the way i want to give a big thanks out there jason d'agostino jason d'agostino sent in a really cool and original lou albano wwf t-shirt and i really loved it and so did everyone else in this house and suzanne somehow ended up with it and now she wears it every now and then so thank you uh, for sending in that shirt, Jason, I really do appreciate it. And uh, one day I'll be able to look at it again, but I'll never get to wear it. It is uh, now claimed by another party. On the topic of supporting the show, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. That is the link you use. And anything you add to your card after using that link, this show gets a little bit of credit, a little bit of love and support from Amazon for what's better than that. You don't spend any more money than you would normally spend, but you support the super podcast. The holidays are coming up. You got to buy lots of gifts for lots of people. Give all those people and use it yourself. Tinyurl.com slash superpod store. If you enjoy the content that comes at you on the super podcast or on any of the Arcadian Vanguard shows that I produce, then you can consider supporting us. Of course, on PayPal, it's paypal.me slash superpodcast or on Patreon, patreon.com slash superpodcast. We don't have Tons of egregious ads. We don't have ads that insult your intelligence. We don't make you embarrassed that you're a wrestling fan by listening to this show. If you appreciate that, and maybe you're a secret millionaire, consider contributing to this show. Uh, and we really do appreciate everyone that already does. Thank you all so much. 
Of course, we are on iTunes. And if you are someone that listens on iTunes, please leave a five-star rating and a positive review. It helps us out big time. And of course, if you want to manually download this show, all you have to do is go to 605pod.com. Every single episode of the Super Podcast is available there, as well as the RSS feed for every single episode. This week's 605 Super Podcast has been sponsored by Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. Of course, once again, the Avid Brothers, November 13th at East Carolina University, this tremendous benefit show that they are doing. If you are in the area, tickets are available at ecutickets.net or 800-DIAL-ECU, the concert for Hurricane Florence Relief. If you have anything you'd like to send into the show, you can do so. Send it to the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the many guests and co-hosts we had this week, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! I can remember seeing it done anywhere else. Hold on. Suzanne, if I'm recording, you can't come over and put the dog on me like that. He came up. He came up to my head. You carried him up to my head. Hold on. Sorry. I just got, I just got clawed by the dog. As I'm about to talk, you don't expect that. I'm like, what the hell? Like on my shoulder. Uh, all right. Hold on. Let me jump back in. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the 